BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Gerald and Charlene Gallego, the sex slave killers. Likely that many of you have not heard of them. Despite killing 10 people together, Gerald and Charlene are not nearly as well-known as some of the bigger names we've already covered in true crime, but not because their crimes are not equally horrific. As a couple, Gerald and Charlene turned their dark sexual desires or possibly only followed Gerald's desires into a murderous rampage that left at least 10 young people dead in California, Oregon, and Nevada between 1978 and 1980. Some of these girls, as young as 13 years old, barely teenagers, sexually assaulted, tortured before being murdered in a remote location. Nine women were raped before being bludgeoned or shot to death. One man killed for happening to be with one of the young women that Gerald wanted to rape and kill. Most of the victims, teens, one pregnant. For two long years, the serial killer couple terrorized the city of Sacramento. The press called the crimes the sex slave murders. Entire communities paralyzed with fear. Finally, when Charlene and Gerald killed two young college students, Craig Miller and Mary Beth Sowers, detectives got their first lead, a license plate number that would lead them first to Charlene's parents' house and then to the killers themselves. After a cross-country chase, the Gallegos were finally caught in Omaha, Nebraska, November 17, 1980, at a Western Union, where a pregnant Charlene was collecting money wired to her from her parents. Charlene's arrest and subsequent plea deal shocked the public. She did not seem like the type of person to be mixed up in a brutal sex crime spree, murder spree. Born in 1956 in Stockton, California, Charlene Williams was adored by her upper middle class parents, spoiled as a single child. She played the violin, was given so many advantages in life. Her father bought her whatever she wanted, like new cars, even her own small business. Gerald, on the other hand, seemed exactly like the kind of person who would do what he ended up doing. By 1977, the year he met Charlene, Gallego was a convicted armed robber, sex offender with a prolific arrest sheet. He was also on his fifth marriage and was a man who had molested his own daughter from a previous marriage beginning at the age of six. By assuming a new identity as Charlene's husband under the name Stephen Robert Feel, this would camouflage him as just another random guy trying to make his way in the world. 
After a whirlwind romance, it soon found them living together. The year after meeting on September 11th, 1978, this couple would go after their first victims. Charlene lured 17-year-old Rhonda Scheffler and 16-year-old Kippy Vaught out of a Sacramento mall into their van with the promise of smoking some weed with them. Once inside, Gerald then held them at gunpoint while Charlene drove out to the Sierra Nevada mountains, where Gerald would rape both teens before shooting them dead. Very soon, more victims would follow. The disturbing story of two of American true crime history's lesser-known dirtbags and their sexually violent exploits right here, right now, on another, you might be having a really bad day right now, but I highly doubt it's as bad as the final days of these two psychopaths victims edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the suck master, guy who would uh, be terrible at being on a covert government surveillance team because I'd probably get in a lot of trouble for talking too much about all the weird shit I found out. Dude who would for sure, or dude who for sure has, excuse me, a, a nice thick NSA file on him right now. And you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, as is Big Brother for sure. Hail Nimrod, hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. I have two very different, uh, very atypical announcements I will share uh, right after mentioning the merch this week, and then we'll jump into the topic. Uh, thanks to all of you who grabbed those autographed, scared to death, volume three fan stories, uh, the books, they they sold out, as did the, the bundles. Uh, such a fun project. Thanks uh, so much for, for letting it be an annual one for us here. Uh, also, new retro atomic tea available in the store in two color combinations. Features the classic Time Suck atomic symbol, uh, vintage Time Suck typeface, for you sacks who uh, love a suck-related shirt but maybe don't want to walk around with a serial killer or inside joke on your chest, this is uh, the one for you. You can head on over to badmagicmerch.com and check that out. Uh, also, uh, yeah, the non-autographed uh, Scared to Death books available uh, did reprints of volumes one, two, and three. Now for some much tougher announcements. Uh, my heart goes out to Jeff Burton of 105.7's uh, The Rizzuto Show in St. Louis. I've been on that show a few times and Jeff and the crew have been uh, huge supporters of what we do here. I text with Moon here and there. I mean, they're just the whole crew. Such good guys from my experience. Uh, Jeff's been with that show since its its inception. And sadly, Jeff, uh, 55, and this was recorded um, back on on July 13th. So I know things may have changed, unfortunately, since it's recording. I'm sorry if they have by the time it gets out. But sadly, Jeff, 55, as of this recording, good man with a wife and two daughters, dude who has been in radio for over three decades, been part of 105.7 The Point in St. Louis for 29 years, uh, has been battling prostate cancer for over a year and and recently went into hospice care, as uh, was alerted to me by, by many listeners. The cancer has spread to his entire body. He will not be able to receive additional treatments. Uh, not a praying guy. I know uh, Riz has already spoken to this, uh, him being the same way, but... Uh, you know, not a praying guy, but thinking of Jeff, uh, dude needs a miracle. So if you believe in those, hopefully you can send a, a prayer his way. Uh, if any fundraising comes up in relation to Jeff's fight, uh, we'll be sure to let you know. I know, again, many of you listen to this show, also fans of the Rizzuto show. And yeah, it's fucking heartbreaking. Also sad. Uh, I know many of you also already know about this. Thanks to the Secret Suck and thanks to the the Facebook groups and, and Reddit and everything else. Uh, but the Reverend Doctor uh, Joe Paisley no longer part of the Bad Magic team. Uh, this is a much bigger, much more involved announcement. Uh, it's a lot to process. 
Not fair to bog down the episode uh, with this if you're just uh, hearing about it for the first time. So I'm not going to say anything up front. Instead, this week's Time Sucker updates will feature an excerpt from The Secret Suck where we announced this over a week ago, uh, explaining everything as much as we are legally allowed to do. We would have done it uh, simultaneously, same week on both shows, but um, it was just based on nothing more than recording schedule. We uh, had happened to already record a few Time Sucks in advance, preparing for a, a now, oh man, needed uh, vacation. And... um and the secret suck is uh, we had not recorded that in advance, and so we were able to jump on that one first. So, yeah. Uh, much appreciated vacation again. Coming up after dealing with uh, some bullshit behind the scenes this past month. But we're good. But we're good. And thanks for all the the nice uh, words that so many people have already sent our way. Uh, but not going to think about that for the next two plus hours, though. Let's get some escapism. I could use some escapism. I, I love that about this show. How about you? Come on, Nimrod and Lucifina, work together to suck me into the suck, leave everything else behind for a bit. Uh, this is very interesting, uh, wild, cool <laughs> to go with scared to death, but story. It's not cool. I'm going to take that back. It's a fucking terrible story, but it's, uh, it's, it is interesting. So let's all feel better about ourselves by investigating the lives of two dipshits uh, whose lives were way more fucked up. I am sure hoping than the lives of anyone listening right now. Uh, if your life turns out to be more fucked up than Gerald and Charlene Gallegos was during their murder spree, well, take a break from listening and turn yourself into the police. Uh, at least a counselor. Let's get started. Uh, back into the world of true crime today, of course, back into the world of couples that killed together as well. Uh, we have previously covered a couple murderous romantic duos like Britain's finest citizens, Fred and Rose West who murdered at least 12 victims between 1967 and 1987. Long spree, bur- buried some of their bodies in the cellar or garden of the West Cromwell Street home, a.k.a. their house of whores. Uh, still can't fucking believe that Fred <laughs> running over and killing a four-year-old boy while driving an ice cream truck, you know, didn't rank in the top 10 worst things that fucker ever did. Uh, we've also covered Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, a.k.a. the Ken and Barbie killers who killed three victims and sexually assaulted others in the Toronto suburbs between 1987 and 1990. Do you remember remember Deadly Innocence? Paul's hip-hop alter ego? Vanilla Ice Light? Still love hearing this. Deadly Innocence rolling in his Nissan 240SX. Painted gold like his bank account. Noise. Watching the flex. Slinging discount ciggies to fools at the bars. Amway got him trained to take his hustle to the stars. Hiding in the bushes like a creep straight peeping. Bush beaten. Bush beaten. <laughs> I'll stop. Uh, still just as fun for me to do as it was in that episode. Uh, the crimes of evil lovers Charlene and Gerald Gallego came before the dirty deeds of both of uh, those couples. They met in 1977. The following year marked the beginning of the murder spree. And then by 1980, when they were caught, 10 people were dead. It was a very short-lived relationship that did a tremendous amount of damage to a lot of innocent people. Ten lives ended, dozens of others dealing with loss and grief for the rest of their lives. All but one of their victims, young females. Some of them just as, uh, you know, girls as young as 13. Like with other murderous couples, where one of the pair is a woman, it just seemed impossible to many from the outside after they were caught uh, that a woman could be partially responsible for such sexually violent, heinous deeds. Also, like our other murderous couples, they uh, remind us that evil can take a supporting role. Following a monster's lead when it comes to sexually torturing and killing in the end, isn't that just really as bad as, as taking the lead? In the end, people were dead, and who uh, who wouldn't have been 
if Charlene hadn't gone along and voluntarily uh, helped, hadn't, uh, you know, led people straight to Gerald. Uh, interestingly, both Gerald's and Charlene's childhoods did help pave the way for their murders, even if at first glance, it only seems like Gerald should have been a killer. A forensic psychologist familiar with this case, Professor Louis Schlesinger, said that Gerald Gallego didn't have an abusive childhood. He had a brutal childhood. Gerald's father had left his son the uh, legacy of murder and crime before being executed in prison himself. And his mother was said to be a, a lot more concerned with partying than she was with parenting. His childhood was filled with a seemingly never-ending stream of new boyfriends and hookups, neglect, abuse, no one doing a whole lot to address his quickly growing rap sheet. Charlene's upper-middle-class childhood seemed fantastic, but she was never taught to take accountability, never taught any responsibility, never had to deal with the consequences of her actions. Daddy always stepped in and fixed everything. She was enabled by both her parents who pretty much allowed her to do whatever she wanted, who just kept helping her no matter what. They even continued to support her when she was obviously Gerald's accomplice, when she was fleeing across the country as a fugitive wanted for multiple murders. If you don't do uh, much as a parent to shape a child's morality, if you just continue to indulge and enable, even when the behavior becomes destructive and dangerous, you're actively helping set your kid up for a life of doubling down on terrible choices instead of learning from them and avoiding them going forward. And then if that child someday meets a, a Gerald Gallego type, well, God help him. When Gerald and Charlene met in 1977, neither of them were making very many good choices. Both have been married several times. Both were drug dealers uh, or users, excuse me, uh, abusers. And Gerald already had a rap sheet. Charlene, meanwhile, had failed at just about everything she tried to do, but never felt the worst of the pain of failure. Her parents always bailed her out. Today's tale really illustrates how two people can continually to get away with something. If everyone around them is just enough of a dumbass, uh, particularly Charlene's parents, to keep covering for them and shielding them from consequences. Shows how dysfunctional relationships can become uh, sheer madness. How two people egging each other on, living in their little echo chamber. Now, one of them never pumping the brakes on the other's horrible fantasies can lead to someone or multiple someone's being dead. Shows how confusing each person's role in the madness can be to decipher later. When the Legos were finally caught after they fled across the country, Charlene would pin it all on Gerald, offering up details about 10 murders and not just the two that they were wanted for at the moment. Charlene painted a picture of her relationship with Gerald built around abuse that led to unwilling participation. But is that true? Today, we're going to try and get to uh, as close to the truth as possible. First, we're going to review the general patho pathology of couples who commit crimes together, how Charlene and Gerald both did and did not fit that mold before looking more closely at how the cultural atmosphere of the 70s and 80s influenced people, uh, especially jurors. Uh, maybe uh, they were uh, viewing Charlene's possible involvement in brutal sex crimes, not as we would today. Uh, we'll examine once again how women are generally thought of as being incapable of committing horrible crimes like murder and sexual assault, and how Charlene may have manipulated this perception to get a much lighter sentence than she did, uh, or much lighter sentence than she should have, excuse me. And then we'll dive headfirst into our time slick timeline before, you know, uh, where we will cover Gerald and Charlene's very different upbringings before we get into the murders and assaults that would eventually get them caught, though not before they'd killed 10 people. Uh, finally, we'll look at the fallout, how Charlene managed to make a deal with prosecutors and, uh, you know, and where she and Gerald are today. All right. As always with a murderous duo, today we uh, don't have just one criminal pathology to sort out, but two. Figuring out their roles in these crimes. Who did what? Who suggested what? Whose fantasy they were acting out? It's a harder task with these two than some of the other famous murderous duos we've covered. As we've covered before, in couples who murder, they, uh, you know, generally uh, one will be more dominant, uh, driven personality type contrasted with a submissive and compliant personality type. 
The dominant person will be the one making the plans and mostly calling the shots, while the submissive partner will look to please the dominant person by complying to their wishes, despite how incredibly dark those wishes might be. In heterosexual partnerships, this dominant personality uh, definitely not strictly confined to the male. There have been couples where the female can be the dominant partner, but typically not when it comes to murder and sexual violence. In fact, the closest example of a dominant female in a male-female murderous romantic relationship built largely on sexual violence that I can think of is Rose West. I mean, she did seem to lead the charge when it came to some of the couple's killings, including killing one of her own, ch- one of her own children. And she uh, very likely, almost certainly killed her stepdaughter completely on her own when Fred was away. But she was also a 15-year-old kid who'd known almost nothing but sexual abuse when she met then 27-year-old Fred. And Fred was the one who brought her into a world of actual murder and sexually motivated violence. So I give him the edge on being the dominant partner there, at least for the overwhelming majority of their relationship. Uh, despite almost never leading the charge when it comes to sexual violence and male-female romantic relationships, female partners have often been seemingly just as excited to be part of the torturing, raping, and killing as their male counterparts. In some cases of romantically linked couples, someone who may not normally commit crime on their own will be drawn to a person they know is committing crimes or become sexually aroused at the thought of them committing crime, causing them to become infatuated. This is known clinically as hybrostophilia, also known, at least to me, as being a case of, are you fucking kidding me? What is wrong with you? Syndrome. Generally, women whose attraction is defined this way have a history of abuse. Studies have shown that women who have a history of abuse in their childhood tend to choose sexual or, you know, more often than known or more often than, you know, people who are not abused in their childhood will choose sexual and romantic partners with a, a criminal and aggressive profile. This continues the pattern of abuse, uh, also known as the Bonnie and Clyde syndrome. How strange, right? You don't want to uh, go out and say uh, kidnap and rape and kill teen girls on your own, but you get wet at the thought of being along for the ride. I mean, you're a fucking monster, but also uh, a weird, dark deviation on the traditional role of the submissive, supportive female. You're, in a, in a really fucked up way, uh, a nurturer. Just uh, nurture darkness. For some reason, this brings a parody of Tammy Wynette's Stand By Your Man into my head. Let me let me sing it for you uh, right now. Stand by your man Give him two hands to cuff up And someone scared to rough up When he feels bold and horny Stand by your man Show the world you love him Keep killing all the ones you can Stand by your man Yeah, I know, I know, I know I'm a no Tammy Wynette. Uh, I had no idea this episode would have me getting uh, very musical. There's a lot more to come. Uh, other less overtly devious real life examples of women with, uh, hybristophilia are women who are drawn to certain men in prison, violent men who have committed, you know, uh, serious crimes such as murder and rape. These women will seek out relationships with these men. And in some cases will even get married to them while they are incarcerated. And they generally don't want to commit more violent crimes with these men. They're just turned on by, uh, either the thought of being with someone who has committed these crimes or with being someone, uh, being with somebody who might commit these crimes again. Men who are capable of them. Feels akin to being an adrenaline junkie to me, like a real dark version of risk-taking. You know, fuck a guy who might kill you or who might kill someone else in front of you who definitely has killed before. 
so much variety in what makes life exciting or pleasurable for us meat sacks, isn't there? Man, I still think most of it is good. Still believe most of us can find pleasure in helping others or at least in not hurting them. Most of our kind doesn't go past maybe a a foot fetish or some BDSM or perhaps group sex, role-playing, anal play type of adventurous sex, but some motherfuckers like Charlene, Gallego, uh, also Gerald, holy shit, do they go way off the beaten path when it comes to chasing their sexual desires, when it comes to uh, what keeps life exciting and worth living for them. You can definitely kink shame these two piles of shit or at least kink shame Gerald. Not 100% sure Charlene got off on what she and Gerald did, but I think so. Uh, with some couples like Carla and Paul, the Ken and Barbie killers, you know, one member is already committing crimes long before they meet the second and the presence of another person merely, merely serves to egg them on further. I'd say that's the case of most of these couples based on the anecdotal evidence I've gathered from researching these, researching these dirt bags, including looking into a lot of psychos who haven't made it into an episode yet. Certainly the case for today's couple. Gerald started doing heinous shit, getting arrested as a kid. On the sexual side of things, he had been abusing his own daughter, Christopher, years before he met Charlene. But as far as we know, he never murdered before he met Charlene. So was he definitely the dominant and was she the submissive? I think so. But maybe Charlene was not as submissive as many made her out to be as she tried to make herself out to be for the jury. Uh, One of our main sources for this episode, uh, one of the only books dedicated fully to the Gallegos, excuse me, a book titled The Sex Slave Murders by Ronald B. Flowers, seems to think that Charlene was very reluctantly, uh, you know, uh, going along with these killings, not participating, not sexually abusing the victims the way that Gerald Gallego did. Unlike with Carla, Homolka, Rose West, there would be little hard evidence to point to what Charlene did or did not do uh, in in these murders in the the trial. Carla Homolka, one half of the Ken and Barbie killers, you know, would have a VHS that showed how she sadistically tortured and sexually abused victims like, you know, uh, along with Paul Bernardo, a VHS tape that unfortunately did not get to investigators' hands before she could strike a plea deal. Remember how Carla's been living the, the high life, how she got out of prison at the age of 35 in 2005? Married her lawyer's brother, had a couple kids like she always wanted, got to go live down in the Caribbean for several years before returning to Canada. I hope that fucking sociopath is miserable, but probably not. That's the joy of being a sociopath, uh, not being burdened with the empathy and guilt uh, us emotionally weaker sex carry around. Uh, with Fred and Rose West, almost anyone who went to their house or talked to their children could tell you that Rose uh, was an active participant and, as I already mentioned, you know, instigated some of her and Fred's uh, crimes. With Charlene, there's simply just not a ton of evidence for us to draw a definitive conclusion from. But we do know that she was the one that would lure victims back to the van with promises of weed or the opportunity to make a few quick bucks by doing some menial labor. Also know that she would be the one to drive the van while Gerald climbed into the back and sexually assaulted victims on the top of a dirty mattress. So that seems pretty fucked up. That, that seems pretty active. Did it turn her on to be around the violence, to watch it, to hear it? Some people definitely get off on that type of voyeurism. She would never admit to that. She maintained that it was all Gerald. I don't buy it. Uh, along with author Ronald B. Flowers, she uh, you know, said that the sexual violence all stemmed from Gerald's sexual fantasies of having a young sex slave and his rage at his inability to consistently get and maintain an erection with only Charlene. What is big deal? So he have limp hate cock. Oh, really? He victim. Just like a chickatillo. Personally, I do think it was probably all Gerald's idea. As he had been sexually abusing his daughter, Krista, long before Charlene came into the picture. But that doesn't mean that Charlene didn't like the fantasy when, when it was presented to her. You know, he, uh, he also, uh, you know, uh, at least molested one other kid. But why didn't his sexually deviant behavior escalate to murder prior to Charlene? Coincidence? Would he have progressed to that point anyway had he not met her? Or did she help him get there? Did she push him to go further? 
She certainly kept helping him rape and kill young girls after she for sure knew what he was going to do to them based on what he'd done to uh, others uh, around her. Charlene lured most of them to Gerald. She would then drive them to a remote location while Gerald sexually assaulted some of them in the back of the van or car. And she kept doing that when she knew that their night of pain was going to end in their deaths. No matter how submissive or not Charlene was, she was definitely not innocent. But she wouldn't be punished nearly as much as Gerald would be because she offered to testify against her husband like Carla Homolka. Uh, Charlene would get a plea deal to serve only 16 years and eight months. Prosecutors decided to make this deal partially due to the fact that getting evidence to prosecute both of them for these crimes was a difficult process. Given communication between police precincts in different states at the time, the process of time having eroded much of the physical evidence from the bodies, uh, new laws that said certain kinds of evidence, including one piece of evidence, which would have been the nail in the coffin for both of them, uh, wasn't able to be used. Despite how important Charlene's testimony would prove to be, would prosecutors have offered that plea to her if she was a him? I don't know. I don't know if I, I, I doubt it. Uh, did they decide at least partially to make their deal because Charlene was a woman, a tiny, blonde, 100-pound, soaking wet woman, far cry from the monster her husband seemed to be. Testifying against her husband, Charlene would tell the jury stories about the abuse that she had suffered at Gerald's hands, describing a sexually insatiable, abusive pervert who controlled every aspect of her life from her finance to how she dressed. And to be fair to Charlene, she may have been telling the truth about a lot of this. One of Gerald's ex-wives would call him a perverted psychosexual maniac. She said that being in bed with him was like being in bed with the rabid Tasmanian devil. His only interests in sex were sodomy, fellatio, and cunnilingus in that order. Also known to manipulate women. Women were known to uh, phone him regularly during his bartender days in Sacramento, and he would, he would rate them as a, a number one girl, a number two girl, etc. With Charlene, he frequently told her that she had the potential to be his number one, a girl with a heart, he called it, but only if she earned his love. That's so fucking gross. Uh, but again, how innocent can Gerald definitely, uh, uh, you know, be, uh, how innocent does Gerald being a huge piece of shit make Charlene? How much of guilt can you absolve yourself of when it comes to helping a monster rape and kill teens? How much can you really blame on your husband? Not, no matter how bad they are. Also, when it comes to Charlene specifically, did she maybe blame Gerald? Not because he was, uh, terrible to her as well, but because she knew people would believe he was terrible to her because he'd been so bad previously. Charlene painted a picture, perfect portrait of an abused wife. But Charlene was well-equipped to think fast and lie through her teeth, convincingly, when she had seriously fucked up. When investigators talked to the couple in the course of two different homicide investigations, both times Charlene blatantly lied to the cops, telling them that she didn't know the victims, uh, you know, had no information about what happened to them. Second time, she even faked morning sickness and a hangover to get out of being interrogated. When the cops came back for her a few hours later, she and Gerald were already on their way across the country, fleeing from justice. Did she also then lie to law enforcement as well to get her plea bargain? Uh, did she lie again to the jury? Certainly possible. For her entire life, she'd been the spoiled only child of her parents, Mercedes and Charles, and she grew up knowing how to get uh, just about anything she wanted from them. New car, co-sign on a loan, apartment, rented space for a small business. Seems as if like many spoil spoiled children, she really learned how to manipulate those around her to get what she wanted. Charlene's parents would uh, even send her and Gerald money while they were on the run finishing off a laundry list of stuff they did to help Gerald over the course of his relationship with Charlene, including finding him a job, helping him change his name uh, illegally to Stephen Robert Feel, uh, believing him when he said the charges of incest and sexual abuse uh, against him made by his own daughter, Krista, were made up. Right, that's so gross. If somebody's dating one of my kids and they've been uh, accused by their child of incest and sexual abuse, I'm going to do some digging. For sure, not going to take their word on that. A uh, real good time to hire a PI 
Had them see what else they can find. Criminal record, previous employers, check in with uh, other people they've dated, et cetera. And then if you find out that they are a real bad bunny, well, obviously you have to, I think morally then hire a hitman. Have them killed. You know, maybe sometimes visit the side of their grave and piss on it. I mean, right? And of course, you know, later you, you, you kill the hitman to cover your, to hide your tracks, you know, and you kill, you kill him for being a killer. <laughs> Loose ends tied up. Now there's two less dirt bags on the planet. Who loses? That seems logical and responsible, right? I mean, that's what you would do. I'm certain. Kind of JK. Uh, so anyway, Charlene almost certainly really knew how to manipulate people. Probably changed her story at least a little bit to ensure that law enforcement, lawyers, and the jury only saw one side of her. The sign of a woman forced to participate in some of the most heinous acts known to man against her will while she was fucking pregnant, no less, with that man's baby. And pregnant women certainly can't do evil, violent things. I mean, we all know that they're nothing but sweet mamas. They're all glowing and innocent, comforting, patient, and kind. I think most of us know that's bullshit. Pregnancy does not make you immune from uh, depravity. We know that now, I hope, but this trial took place in the 80s when gender politics were very different than they are now. Right? These days, because of all the true crime docs and podcasts featuring women like Jody Poopole, Loophole, Arias, we know that women are capable of just as much heinous, fucked up shit as men. And again, looking at you, Jody, uh, oftentimes these women then try to cover up their crimes by saying that they were the real victims of abuse. When Jody finally admitted to killing Travis Alexander, she said it was only because he was a sexually depraved monster, a pervert who lusted after little children, made her act out degrading fantasy. She had to, to please him, and she just couldn't take it anymore. Of course, given the prolific evidence, the fact that none of Travis's other friends had anything like this to say about him, and the fact that Jody ended up being a proven liar over and over and over, uh, she got caught, much like Casey Alexander in telling lie upon lie, and nobody believed her. And now she'll sit in prison for the rest of her life. Uh, Jody, not Casey. Casey's a murderer living a, a living free. A, alleged murderer, but come on. She fucking did it. Anyway, back in the 80s, a uh, different story. We were still a long way from being constantly exposed to the heinous deeds of Jody Arias, Carla Homolka, Rose West, many other women, even Eileen Wernos, arguably the most famous female serial killer in the US, who we should probably suck here soon, uh, who was executed by lethal injection in Florida, wouldn't begin her crime spree until 1989. So people didn't know about her yet. Instead, the most famous serial killers of the two decades before Charlene and Gerald Gallego uh, would just be an all-star litany of terrible men. Zodiac Killer, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, the Hillside Stranglers, Rodney Alcala, or Alcala, you know, on and on and on. In terms of high-profile murderers, the women who were most prominent in the decades before Charlene Gallego were the members of the Manson family. Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, uh, Linda Kasabian, Squeaky Fromm. On June 15th, 1970, the Tate-LaBianca trial against Manson, Watson, Atkins, and, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Krenwinkel uh, began for several ca- for seven counts of murder and one count of conspiracy. Leslie Van Houten, another member of the group, charged with two counts of murder, one count of conspiracy, and Linda Kasabian, uh, in exchange for immunity, testified for the prosecution to explain the events that occurred during each vicious crime. The world watches the young women rallied around their cult leader when Manson entered the court on the first day of the murder trial. Several people gasped when they saw he had carved a bloody X, looked uh, almost like a swastika in his forehead to me. Uh, outside, his followers, you know, passed around a rambling typewritten statement in which Manson declared, I have X'd myself from your world. He sure did. That dumb, crazy fuck would spend the uh, last of his many days in prison. When the trial resumed on Monday, defendants Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten showed up with X's carved into their foreheads as well. Patricia Kasabian would testify about Manson's control over the group, saying he separated mothers from their children, arranged sexual relations between members, got his followers to believe he was the Messiah. Kasabian's testimony, including all of the cult's theatrics in the courtroom, helped prove prosecutor Vincent Bugliozzi's argument that although Manson wasn't present for the Tate and LaBianca murders, he was responsible for orchestrating them. A similar case would be another Time Suck uh, alum, Patty Hearst. 
If you don't remember, Patty Hearst, the daughter of a wealthy newspaper publisher who lived in California, was kidnapped in 1974 by the Symbionese Liberation Army, the SLA, small American leftist group. They demanded that the Hearst family give $70 worth of food to every needy person from Santa Rosa, Los Angeles. The Hearst didn't see their daughter until two months later when a surveillance camera caught Patty participating in an armed robbery at a bank. Audio tapes of Hearst speaking emerged, uh, revealing she had become part of the SLA. She actively participated in criminal activity in California, even extorting an estimated $2 million from her own father. After 19 months in the SLA, Hearst was captured by the FBI, and in her trial, she claimed, what else, that she was brainwashed into committing those crimes. Right? Despite this, the jury sentenced her to seven years in prison, but she'd only served two. Would she have served only two years if she had done those same things and looked like uh, me? I doubt it. Charlene would try to put herself in the same position, saying that Gerald had effectively brainwashed her. These cases had stuck around in the cultural imagination of America, and as evidenced by the way Charlene's sentencing played out, very likely informed people's view of how women participated in crimes. And Charlene sure seemed to play off of this. She did appearance-wise, seemed controllable, something which she played up in her testimony. Remember, this was the era of pop culture when women were represented either as ditzy sex icons or loving mothers. From Chrissy Snow on Three's Company, cute bubbly blonde, wore a wardrobe of tight outfits to all in the family's Edith Bunker, the matriarch of the Bunker family who consistently deferred to her husband, Archie. For every representation of a woman who spoke her mind, like Mary Richards, played by Mary Tyler Moore on the Mary Tyler Moore show, there were way more women who were depicted as scatterbrained, silly, naive. Blockbuster movies didn't show anything very different, right? In Greece, which came out in 1978, the year that Charlene and Gerald began their murder spree, Olivia Newton-John, played Sandy, an impressionable young woman who ends up changing to win the love of Danny Zuko, played by John Travolta. Charlene made jurors think that uh, she wasn't all that different than Sandy. But instead of putting on a leather jacket and eyeliner, she helped commit murders. So like a little bit different, but not that different. And now I feel like I have to sing a bit of a Grease parody now. Charlene Gallego's version of You're the One That I Want. Better shape up. Cause I need a man. My heart is set on you You better shape up You better understand If I kill, I kill for you You're the one that I want Ooh, 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 kill her The one that I want Ooh, 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 get her The one that I want Ooh, 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 the one I'll feed Oh, darkest deeds. Sorry if all that scared your dogs. Better parodies, darker lyrics, Papa Time Suck. Refocusing now. <laughs> Some of you are probably like, fuck it, thank God. That was painful. Charlene was younger than her husband, uh, a lot physically smaller, came from a good family, was pregnant for much of the crime spree, uh, said she, uh, you know, more easily controlled, although she had been married twice before and gotten out of those uh, two marriages just fine. Altogether, the picture she painted uh, made it look like Charlene wasn't, couldn't be the real monster, just collateral damage from Hurricane Gerald. And to the jury and all those following the story, it didn't seem like Gerald's life at all, uh, you know, would come together. It did seem like it came together to create the perfect storm of anger, sexual rage, and lack of respect for human life. Uh, Gerald's father was actually the first man executed by the gas chamber in the state of Mississippi in 1955. He'd escaped from prison multiple times in California before ending up in Mississippi where he murdered two law enforcement officers, including one while he was awaiting execution for murdering the other. Uh, Dude came from prime murdering stock. By the time he met Charlene, uh, Gerald had already been married five times. All of his marriages had been incredibly short-lived, mostly because he physically abused his partners. Also had a criminal history dating back to the young, young age of six. 
has been a solid chunk of his life in prison for robbery and escaping prison. Compared to Charlene, it could definitely seem to a jury like Gerald was the exact kind of hardened criminal who beat, raped, murdered young women and who would also drag his scared, innocent, pregnant wife around uh, to, to force her to watch this depravity. But as we explore the story of the Gallegos, we'll see that Charlene had every opportunity to leave. And in fact, before the last murders took place, she did leave. Could have stayed gone. Definitely, but didn't. She and Gerald soon found each other again. Chaos ensued that led to more rape and death. She may have been submissive to Gerald, but, uh, you know, sure as shit, also chose to put blood on her hands. Had every opportunity to uh, go to the police to report Gerald for numerous crimes, including identity theft when he started going by Stephen Robert Field. Uh, one reason she probably didn't do uh, that was because her parents had been the ones to help Gerald take on that new identity, believing that shedding the record of a convict and taking on a new name would help him uh, get a better job and be uh, able to better provide for their daughter. And while that's true, uh, why not just encourage her to fucking leave him? Why not refuse to help her until she has helped herself? Because Charlene was very manipulative. She even manipulated her parents into thinking that the accusations that Gerald's daughter, Krista, made against Gerald were fake. The accusation being that Gerald, you know, been molesting her since she was six. All of Gerald's family believed that accusation, by the way, including his own mother and stepfather. But Charlene, the golden child, the apple of her father's eye, convinced her parents otherwise. Whether or not she was telling the truth during the trial, Charlene Gallego knew how to play people like a fucking fiddle. And that's something to keep in mind as we journey down today's Time Suck timeline. All right, that was a lot of details. We'll go over uh, again here soon in chronological order. But uh, just wanted to draw more attention to Charlene than others covering her story seem to have done in the past. And not because we want to make Gerald look like a, look like a good dude. Gerald's a piece of shit. I don't think anyone's uh, doubting that or was before he died. May he not rest in peace. It would actually be fun to bring him back to life just to, to, to kill him again in a more painful way this time around. I just think that Charlene also was a huge piece of shit and still is in all likelihood. Uh, Curious what you will think. I won't alter source material selection to try and make her look better or worse. Uh, I won't frame the narrative in the timeline to to try to play to my case, to Sophie Evans' case as well. She did a great job with initial research and Sophie, uh, really not a fan of Charlene. I love coming across the uh, young Jedi's righteous wrath in some of the research. Okay, let's get into the weeds of all this now. Right after our mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P com slash time suck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, 
is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks for listening to those sponsors. Uh, I'm sure none of you ever skipped that part of the show. Uh, but seriously, thanks if you did. Thanks if you didn't. What am I? Uh, I fucking, I'm all over the place. Let's just get into our true crime timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. On July 17th, 1946, the first of our two dirtbags is born. Gerald Armand Gallego in Sacramento. And you know what? Forget what I said earlier. Uh, when I really stopped to think about it, he was not born into that much, much uh, dysfunction. I, 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 you know what? He was probably born into a very happy home. 
I mean, for starters, he did have a super present dad. They were like two peas in a pod, totally inseparable uh, whenever they were together, which was, you know, uh, virtually never. But that wasn't Big G's fault. Uh, Gerald Albert Gallego was just 19 when Gerald was born. Uh, he had uh, also, he was serving time in California's San Quentin prison for auto theft and for writing bad checks. And probably got framed. I'm going to guess he got framed for that stuff. Uh, he'd be paroled in February 1947. And he kind of maybe hung around his baby boy a little bit. Sources don't say, but I bet he, uh, I bet he hurt his back, you know, just carrying little G all over the place. And then when Gerald wasn't quite four, instead of helping little man get ready for kindergarten, uh, dad had to go do some dad shit. Like it sent back uh, behind bars in San Quentin. Uh, by April of 1950 for a second degree robbery this time. But no big deal. Again, that's just dad doing some dad shit. And Gerald Sr., not really a senior because they have different middle names, but easier for me to differentiate these two this way, uh, would be paroled again in October of 1953, behaved himself in prison for baby boy, you know, probably pinned a photo to a cell wall and kissed it first thing in the morning, last thing, uh, you know, night every day. And then he might have, uh, you know, but probably did not spend time with little man because almost immediately uh, he'd have his parole revoked. Fucking bummer, framed again but he would not be put back behind bars. He needed to spend time with his son, but first he needed to go hide in Mississippi. But then within just a few months, he would be sent to jail there. God, this great guy must have the world record for being framed the most times of anyone. In Mississippi, Gerald Sr. was arrested on charges of drunkenness, May 27th, 1954. <laughs> Guess it was illegal to have fucking fun in Mississippi back then. But don't worry, dry those eyes. Big G was not gonna stay behind bars. No, not that cat, not that kick-ass dad. Fuck no, little man was waiting back in Sacramento. When he was being taken to a Pascaluga jail, uh, yeah, Pascaluga jail uh, he overpowered, disarmed, and kidnapped Night Marshal Ernest Beguez. Beguez found murdered by his own gun a few days later. Probably tripped and fell on it. Accidentally went off. Accidents happen after Big G. I bet, uh, you know, gave him a hug. Let him, uh, let him go. Told him to believe in himself. Told him he needed to go find his baby boy. Sorry about the hassle. Very short time later, following an armed robbery, Gerald Sr. arrested, tried, convicted, sentenced to death for Beguez's murder. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, that, uh, that put a kink and baby boy reunion plants. He'd be the first man executed in Mississippi's new gas chamber, and his execution date was set for March 3rd, 1955. But before that could happen, uh, Gerald Sr. and another inmate, Minor Sorber, uh, or probably Minor Sorber, uh, escaped from the Hines County Jail while they were awaiting execution. You know, fucking baby boy! Daddy's coming! You know, in the process, Gerald Sr. threw a blinding acid disinfectant to the eyes of the jailer, Jack Landrum, and then proceeded to severely beat him to the point of unconsciousness with a metal pipe. Landon would die four days later, accidentally, obviously. Accidents again happen. And Glego and Sorber uh, would then be recaptured the same day and fucking blamed for that. Then on March 3rd, 26-year-old Gerald Sr. would be executed just as scheduled. But don't be sad. Do not worry about it. Dry your tears again. He's up in heaven now. Probably reunited with uh, sweet baby boy. Apparently, Big G had a religious conversion right before his execution. As he walked to the gas chamber, he gave Sheriff Leo Bird a letter. And part of it read, Sheriff... If at any time you should have young men in your jail, please tell them that I was once like them. And should they continue, there is no reward but hardship and grief for their parents. Show them the way to God, of God forgives who of God who forgives all of our sins, and tell them it's nothing to be ashamed of, to humble yourself before God. May my words help those who are on the wrong path. Eh, should have maybe have asked to give that letter to your son, buddy. Little G. Gerald Jr. would not humble himself before the Lord he would kind of end up sucking the devil's dick instead to continue with this religious analogy. Uh, his mother, Lorraine Gallego, listed vaguely as a sex worker in some sources, would remarry twice following her husband's execution, which took place when Gerald was nine. Before that, another source talked about a revolving door of bad dudes coming in and out of Gerald's life. Various criminals, perverts, abusive pieces of shit, etc. The lower crust of Sacramento society. 
By the time he was nine, when his sweet, sweet papa, oh God, guy constantly got framed, was executed. Gerald was well on his way to following in his father's footsteps. His criminal record, while the first offense not listed in sources specifically, uh, allegedly began at the age of six and included everything from running away, I guess that's probably the first offense, uh, to also various sex offenses, to burglary. Uh, age 12, he'd be put on probation by the juvenile authorities for burglary and later, also in 12, charged with committing lewd and lascivious acts, lascivious acts, excuse me, uh, with a six-year-old girl. So he had, he had a, he had a straight up, uh, Steph Cox scurvy sort of childhood. If your daddy got executed for murder when you was nine, and if your criminal record began when you were six, and you were a sex offender by the age of 12? You might be a killer. In October of 1959, Gerald, uh, sweet little Jer Bear, now 13, was sentenced to a California Youth Authority facility, the Fred C. Nell School for Boys in Whittier, part of the L.A. metro area between L.A. and Anaheim. He'd be paroled in July of 1961, right around his 15th birthday, and then arrested again less than a year later with his half-brother David Hunt for armed robbery. Uh, this crime will get him time in the uh, Preston School of Industry in Ione, California, but it wasn't to last. Gerald escaped from the school, making Papa proud. Better escapes, better kills. Papa Calego. But then turned himself in for reasons not made clear. Must have felt it was better for his future than having to hide all the time. And he uh, would then be paroled again. 1963. That same year he got married. Despite not, uh, quite being six, seven, or not quite being 17 years old. His wife, unnamed in sources, was 21. And in April of 1964, his first child, Krista, was born. The marriage was short-lived because Gerald frequently beat her with his fist, and with a fucking hammer. Goddamn. Little Jer Bear. Little G. Dude loved a hammer, unfortunately. This will come up again. During the, divorce, uh, during the divorce, both Gerald and the woman fought for custody. And for some reason, custody was given to Gerald, who then sent Krista to live with his mother, Lorraine. Clearly, there was a lot more to this story than what has been recorded in sources. What is going on when the mother loses custody of a child during a time when mothers almost always got custody to a dude who beat her with a fucking hammer? Was she then taking that hammer and beating little Krista with it? Was uh, Krista maybe uh, picking up the hammer and then beating the dog with it? What the hell is going on here? I'm guessing she was probably sadly uh, addicted to heroin or alcoholic or just, uh, yeah, on something that just, you know, made it impossible for her to perform motherly duties. Uh, backing up a bit before this divorce, Jer Bear briefly went to a normal high school. And for some reason, it didn't go well. He was suspended from Sacramento High School in December of 1963 after receiving five Fs in five classes. So, <laughs> you know, could have. Could have probably tried hard in at least one of them. His probation officer noted his social traits were all listed as failures. He currently typifies a hard-shelled young man who evidenced uh, little motivation for improvement, remorsefulness, or insight. Nailed it. Uh, he got married as champion for a second time, July 12th, 1966, to a 24-year-old West Sacramento waitress. This marriage was uh, even shorter than the first. Uh, only 26 days after the wedding, she would leave him. And I have to say, pretty disappointed that she didn't try harder to make it work. She would later recall the day she left saying, he chased me all over the house that day with a knife. I locked myself in the bathroom and he finally calmed down. I wasn't going to leave and then he wouldn't let me out of the house. I don't, I mean, come on. What's the, uh, yeah, he's upset. People get upset and they chase people around with knives, right? I mean, if Lindsay walked out on me every time I chased her all around the house with a fucking knife, uh, we wouldn't be married. Wouldn't be married. That's fucking crazy. Uh, and Jared Bear's defense though, I am kind of proud of him for not chasing around with a hammer. I mean, as scary as a knife is, I feel like a hammer scarier. If I had to have a, a, a you know psychopathic murderer chase me around and they get to have a knife or a hammer, personally, I'm gonna let them keep the knife. I would prefer knife over hammer. Uh, similar story with marriage number three, which took place October 14th, 1967. 
Uh, he kept beating me. It was all the woman would later say on the, on the record. I couldn't take it. He became very cruel. That marriage lasted only a month. Then Gerald was quickly married again. Reno, March, 1969. He's only 23, fourth marriage, 23, very stable, really has his shit together. His fourth wife, Harriet, was 19 and pregnant when the marriage ended less than a month later. Her father would say he was Jekyll and Hyde. He was such a nice boy when he was coming to the house. Then they got married. 19 days later, I wanted to kill him. While his love life wasn't going gangbusters, at least Little G's career at this time was going well. Uh, Gerald bragged to friends about stealing cars and holding up drugstores. And on October 25th, 1969, he and his half-brother, David, arrested again during a robbery of a motel in Vacaville. Vacaville. Uh, the half-brothers and another inmate escaped from the Solano County Jail shortly after arriving. For father! Daddy would be proud. Uh, but then they were uh, recaptured four days later in San Francisco. Also for father! Like father, like son. Good at escaping. Uh, better at getting recaptured. Papa Galego. Gerald was sentenced to serve five years to life in state prison. Yeah, five years to life, excuse me, in state prison. Uh, he started his sentence at the Dual Vocational Institution, DVI, in Tracy, California, before being transferred to the California Medical Facility in Vacaville for uh, psychiatric treatment for depression. Backing up now to 1956, let's meet Gerald's future accomplice, Charlene Williams, born October 10th, 1956 in Stockton, California. Let's keep the song theme going. Charlene makes me think of Jolene, that super popular classic Dolly Parton song that would be recorded in 1973. Man, Dolly Parton in 1973. Stupid, musically talented, and preposterously beautiful. She kind of became a punchline for a while, known mostly for very large breasts. No, she was a badass. Crazy good at business. Uh, could have been a supermodel as well. And now I want to sing the Charlene version of Jolene. Just, just a little piece. Just a little piece. Charlene, 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 Charlene. I'm begging you, don't lure me to Jer's van. Charlene, 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 Charlene. You don't pull the trigger, but you're as bad as your man. I know I jumped in too fucking quick on a second little uh, riff there. I know. I, I, get, I get too excited. That's why I'm shooting at karaoke. I don't want to wait for it. Uh, Stockton is the seat of, uh, and also not, not having a great voice for it. This is also something that holds me back a little bit on karaoke. Uh, Stockton is the seat of uh, San Joaquin County, along the San Joaquin River, about 40 miles south of Sacramento. The uh, city was founded as part of a Mexican land grant to William Golnack in 1850, 1844. And because of its advantage point on the river, Stockton grew rapidly to become a supply point during the 1849 gold rush. In 1850, the city was renamed to honor Commodore Robert F. Stockton who in 1846 had claimed California for the U.S. Stockton, the first incorporated city in California to bear a name not of Spanish or American Indian origin. I hope that tidbit comes in handy in some future trivia game for you. Uh, recently, Stockton has become, I don't want, I don't want to say shithole. I'm sure there's some nice parts. But overall, statistically, you have to know this if you live there. Pretty fucking rugged. The Stockton real estate market was disproportionately affected by the 2007 mortgage crisis that obviously rolled in 2008. The city led the U.S. in foreclosures uh, for that year with one of every 30 homes posted for foreclosure. In 2010, because of the foreclosures, unemployment-related economic factors, Forbes named Stockton one of the three worst places to live in the entire U.S. Following the 2008 financial crisis in June of 2012, Stockton became the largest city in the U.S. uh, to ever file for bankruptcy protection. 
According to the most recent FBI stats, Stockton is more dangerous than 95% of other U.S. cities. Violent crime in Stockton, 229% higher than the national average. Most prevalent crimes are property, uh, uh, theft, and assault. Uh, Just two years ago, in a study conducted by diversitydatakids.org, Stockton ranked the fourth city out of 100 cities studied to raise children in the entire country. So it's not great for kids. But you know what? So what? I don't want to keep shit on Stockton. I bet it's a great place to be single. Last year, in a study conducted by Porch.com to assess how desirable metros in the U.S. are in the U.S. are for uh, single millennials, Stockton ranked 148th out of the uh, 150th largest metro areas in the U.S. Third from last. Okay, all right. So it's not good for families or for single people. So uh, fucking so what? I bet it is. A, I bet it's a great place to be married and elderly. I don't know. If you live in Stockton, uh, maybe you should write in and correct me, or maybe you should focus all of your life's energy on moving out of there. Maybe the data doesn't accurately represent the whole city. and it's a, it's a hidden gem. I don't know. I've never visited. Now after reading this, it doesn't sound like I want to go. Uh, anyway, back in the 1950s when Charlene was born, Stockton was not a herpes blister on America's asshole like it is now. And those are not my words. Please don't get mad at me for that. Don't shoot the messenger. That's a direct quote from a Time Magazine article titled American Cities That Are Most Like Anal Herpes Blisters, uh, written by Pat Sajak. So if you're upset about that one, uh, Pat Sajak from, the, from Wheel of Fortune, just look him up and message him. Come on, JK. Uh, for real now, back in the 1950s, business uh, was booming in Stockton. Railroads taking produce, the city's main output to cities all across the U.S. Uh, it was politically important, too, to stop for politicians on their way across the country, including Herbert Hoover, 1954, Harry Truman in 1953, even a young upstart named uh, Fuckface Nixon during his first bid for president. Celebrities were drawn to Stockton because of the scenery and proximity to Hollywood. I mean, it's not, it's not really that close, but, you know, uh, by all accounts, Charlene led a charmed start to her life there. Her parents, Charles and Mercedes Williams, doted on her. Charles and Mercedes. That's an interesting uh, couple of names for a couple. Charles and Mercedes. Sounds like Ken and Barbie's trashy friends. Sounds like a couple who get sloppy every time at parties, right? Like if you like if you get in the hot tub after midnight with Chuck and Mercedes, well, you're getting groped. And by 2 a.m., one of them is either puking or passing out. Just fucking Chuck. God damn it. Where's Mercedes. We have, to, we have to get Chuck off the lawn back in the house. What? She's in the hot tub with Randy? With Handy Randy? It's always something. Chuck and Mercedes. Uh, anyway, Charles made good money as a top executive for a supermarket chain, and Mercedes sold cosmetics. And they did well enough to be able to move from Stockton to the upper middle class neighborhood of Arden Park in Sacramento. Excuse me, early in uh, Charlene's childhood. According to those who knew her, Charlene was a shy child with an unusually high IQ. She was put in sixth grade classes for gifted students. When she moved over there, took violin lessons. She was so good, the family speculated that she might attend Juilliard someday. But then in high school, Charlene's personality began to change. She started drinking, doing drugs, having sex. Her grades fell, making graduation, which once seemed inevitable, something that she would do with honors, of course, right? And get into God knows how many great colleges. Now it just seemed like a slight possibility. And it seemed like her fall from grace was not, uh, you know, really stopped by her parents, especially her dad. They didn't do the right thing, in my opinion. Rather than show her some tough love or try to get uh, to the root of what her problems were, daddy especially just showered his princess with gifts, regardless of whether or not she did anything to deserve them. After letting her party it up in high school, uh, he bought her a shiny new Oldsmobile as a graduation present in the spring of 1974. He rented her an apartment, bought her new clothes, even invested $15,000 in Charlene's The Dangling Shop a business venture in a Folsom shopping strip uh, where she would sell potted plants, uh, macrame, and knickknacks. And it didn't last long or, or do well. And 15 grand in 1974 is the equivalent of about $90,000 today, by the way. 
Okay, now let's check back in with her. Future Prince Charming. On October 5th, 1974, now 28-year-old Gerald Gallego gets married for the fifth fucking time. Sweet. This time in Butte County, just north of Sacramento. He is good at marriage. He's, he's good at getting married. I don't know about the rest of it. Uh, his wife was 19, worked at a laundromat. Gerald's daughter, Kristen, now 10 years old, served as the ring bearer, even though he introduced her to the priest as his sister. Not weird, totally normal. Uh, Gerald was on parole at that time. Somehow managed to convince his parole officer that he was a reformed man. That parole officer would write, it is the feeling of this agent that he could be discharged from further parole supervision without a significant risk to the community. Nailed it. Ah, Jared Bear, just a cuddly old teddy bear now. He had set his hammer down and only chased women around with roses. Charlene also gets married in 1974, October 19th, her 18th birthday. She marries a 19-year-old soldier named Rick. They'd met while he was on a weekend leave in Sacramento. Uh, He liked her sweet, charming nature, he said. But just when they decided to get married, she seemed to change. She cut her hair, began using uh, makeup, started dressing differently. Weird that an 18-year-old, just turned 18-year-old, wouldn't just keep staying the same forever. Because most people never experiment with different looks and identities, you know, quickly and significantly in their teenage years. Man, Rick really got the shaft there. Uh, The day after the wedding, Rick reported for army duty in Germany. In Germany, he wrote Charlene almost daily, but she literally never replied. The Rick fantasy quickly ran its course. Uh, The marriage would be annulled at the petition of Rick's parents on May 5th, 1975, just over six months after it all began. Meanwhile, Charlene started taking classes at California State University, Sacramento. Her major was psychology, but she would only last a semester before dropping out. Maybe should have stuck with that longer. Maybe could have uh, stayed until she learned what to look for in toxic relationships. Or maybe didn't want to study anymore because uh, she was discovering how toxic she was. I don't know. December 12th, 1975, Gerald's parole ends. The now 29-year-old career criminal is a free man again. Following summer, Charlene gets married again. August 1976, in a ceremony attended by over 100 guests at United Methodist Church in Sacramento, Charlene marries Elliot, a 24-year-old ex-soldier whom Charlene had met during high school and dated on and off. She's almost 20 now, so this should work out well. I mean, she knows who she is, who she's going to be forever. Not JK. No, their marriage was marked by a ton of problems right from the start. Uh, Charlene had bronchial asthma. Elliot suffered from frequent violent seizures. Both of them going fucking hard in the paint on drugs and alcohol, exacerbating their you know, health problems. They were smoking weed laced with PCP and shit, uh, which I've heard is not great for asthma. Also, at one point early in their short-lived marriage, Charlene tried to commit suicide by ingesting pine saw disinfectant. I fucking love pine saw. That shit smells so good. Uh, one of my chores all through high school was to mop the floors uh, and we used pine saw. And if I would have been into huffing fumes to get high, I would have huffed the shit out of pine saw. But also, uh, uh, never fucking do that. Uh, super dangerous. Huffing anything. Super dangerous. A uh, really shitty way to get high. Grow up. Smoke some weed if you have to do something. Huffing's just a great way to die. Uh, Elliot would say he knocked the pine saw out of her hand before she drank enough to warrant calling poison control. He didn't think the problem was uh, with her, actually, that they were dealing with. Uh, He thought their problems were because of her meddling parents who kept trying to tell him what he could, what he couldn't do, uh, refusing to discipline their daughter. Everything she did was fucking great. Yay, meddlesome in-laws. Yay, classic enabling. That never leads to infantile, emotionally regressed adults who never make anything of their lives, does it? Fuck yeah, bro. Uh, Charlene and Elliot get divorced. May 25th, 1977, second marriage, the last less than a year. That same summer, Gerald separates from his fifth wife in August of 1977. Holy fuck, this guy is just killing it. He's just turned 31. His divorce won't be finalized until two months later. But in the meantime, following month, September 10th, 1977, month before her 21st birthday, Charlene meets Gerald Gallego at a Sacramento Sacramento poker club 
uh, called the Black Stallion Card Room. Of course, Gerald is hanging out at a place called the Black Stallion. He is a stallion. That's why he can't be tamed by marriage. You can't tame a fucking stallion, ladies. You can build a fence, but you can't stop him from jumping it. Really working hard right now not to start singing a version of the Eagles' Desperado. Uh, to outsiders, I don't think anyone uh, would have pegged Gerald and Charlene for a future serial color, serial killing couple uh, or really a couple at all. Uh, Appearance-wise, people thought they were mismatched. Gerald was 5'7 with rugged features, deep, dark eyes with brown hair parted on one side, slicked down on the other. Uh, he was considered not nearly as attractive as Charlene. I would agree looking at pictures, but he was confident, manipulative. Uh, unfortunately, that combination can go a long ways. Uh, Charlene looked like a Barbie doll, cute, blonde haired, blue eyed, five feet tall, hundred pounds soaking wet, both kicking ass in life when they met. Couldn't be doing better. Uh, Gerald had seven felony convictions under his belt, five marriages. So clearly he had shit figured out. Charlene had already gone through two marriages and had acquired uh, what was listed in sources as a hard drug habit. When Gerald asked Charlene for her phone number, uh, she was flattered, handed it over. I mean, sure things hadn't worked out uh, the first two marriages, but this guy, this fucking stallion, Clearly the champion that she had been looking for, the hero that she'd been holding out for. Now I need to play a snippet of another song. So full of songs today. Uh, Held back on Desperado, but can't hold back here. Gerald was the hero that Bonnie Tyler eloquently sang about a few years later. And yes, this song is also from the Footloose soundtrack, giving me two Footloose references in the past three episodes. If you're keeping score, which you should be. No parody this time. It just works as is. Gerald was always fresh from the fight. That fucking stallion. Uh, next day, September 11th, a dozen long stem roses arrived at Charlene's house with a note that read to a very sweet girl, Jerry. <laughs> oh, Jer Bear, such a charmer. Such a great guy. Within weeks, the two were living together in a duplex that Charlene was renting on Mission Avenue. I have to assume her parents were paying for that rent, even though it's not stated in sources. Then soon after they started living together, Gerald, according to Charlene's testimony, uh, starts to get weird. Huh, no one saw that coming. Uh, starts to control her. He tells uh, Charlene how to wear her hair, what clothes to wear, only jeans and t-shirts. Takes control of their finances, despite his only financial contribution being some occasional money he would win from playing cards. Uh, they also start having sex problems. Whenever Gerald couldn't get it up, which was often, he blamed his sad, limp dick on her. Sometimes they would uh, try every position known to man, but he just would still be limp. What is big deal? So he struck soft shamecock. Uh, other times, if they found that a particular position hurt Charlene, but worked for Jerry, he would tell her, quote, that's too damn bad. Huh. Almost seems like a position hurting Charlene is what probably turned him on. Wee bit of a red flag there, Meat Sacks. If your partner seems to prefer positions that hurt you, still wants to have that kind of sex knowing it hurts you, pretty good chance that you're with a selfish, maybe even sadistic piece of shit. Uh, if nothing, you try lube, relaxing with a couple glasses of uh, wine, even talking about sex with a therapist seems to help. If it's just a physical thing, you cannot help and it fucking hurts. And they're like, too damn bad. You should shut that relationship down. No questions asked. That's fucking toxic as shit. Lucifinia uh, assures me you'll be happier elsewhere. But in this example, are we sure this is how it went down? No, we are relying on the word of someone with strong motivation to lie about the nature of their relationship. Someone trying to avoid spending the rest of their life in prison. So maybe she's telling the truth about Jer Bear here, or maybe she's really full of shit and just saying what prosecutors, you know, the jury uh, wants to hear from her. Uh, based on what other exes will say about Gerald, though, 
I do believe he was pretty sadistic. Uh, Gerald also allegedly had a roving eye, which he was very open about. He would rank women openly according to his old system, never telling Charlene that she was at the top of the list. Did this with previous women he uh, was in relationships with as well. If Charlene was lucky, she would get to be his number two girl. <laughs> that is so fucked up. Oh, man. And uh, yeah, and I do believe he did this because of, uh, again, other people saying it. Man, some people, not just serial killers, just uh, just some people, just such needlessly horrible fuck faces. Think about how cruel you have to be, how disgusting and pathetic of a person you need to be to tell your romantic partner stuff like, <laughs> damn. Woo, wee, check out her ass, baby. That's that's a peach I'd like to take a bite out of. That waist, mm, those titties, golly. I'm gonna talk to her. She's gonna be my number one. And did you see who came to visit the neighbor uh, yesterday? Laying out by the pool, those long, tan legs, wavy supermodel hair. Oh, hot damn, she's gonna be my number two. Don't be sad, though. Don't frown. Come on, baby. Why are you tearing up? You're, I'm gonna keep you around. You're gonna be my number three. I'm gonna fuck you nice and painful-like. If you can actually finally be hot enough to get my dick hard, that's why you're number three. If you say stuff like that to your partner and you're not joking, please do the world a favor. Just go throw yourself off a fucking cliff. Don't even go to, don't even try therapy. Just skip it. Just go straight to cliff. Uh, preferably a real high one with a lot of jagged rocks in the bottom. Uh, December of 1977, Charlene purchases a 25 caliber automatic pistol from a sporting goods store in Del Paso Heights, a uh, Sacramento neighborhood. Hmm, I wonder what's going on there. Probably getting it for Gerald. Probably getting it for Jer Bear. Uh, after getting in some heated arguments, probably about sex, maybe about Gerald being uh, pushy about anything, uh, you know, despite not having a, a fucking job or contributing to the relationship in any meaningful way, uh, Gerald moves out of the duplex he shares with Charlene, uh, but he'll be back just a few weeks later. Shit must not, not have worked out with uh, some, of, some of his other higher number gals. Numbers one and two must have not wanted some unattractive, abusive, freeloading felon to mooch off them for some weird reason. Now, Gerald, when he's back, tells Charlene, in addition to mooching off of her and living in the duplex her parents were likely paying for, uh, he has some new sexual demands. He wants her to indulge him in some new fantasies, including ones with underage girls. For reasons never made clear, this does not cause Charlene to tell him to stay the fuck away from her. Nope. Charlene just supposedly uh, brushes this off and lets him move back in. Oh, man. Who the fuck brushes that off? This is when she starts to uh, become a character that is hard for me to feel sympathy for. Like, can you imagine your partner bringing that up and you just brushing it off? Hey, baby. Mm, uh, yeah. I want to try something. I want to try something new in the bedroom. Yeah? No, what are you, uh, what are you thinking? Natalie. Uh, what's, what's a Natalie? Not what, baby? Who? Who the fuck is Natalie? You know Natalie. That sexy-ass 13-year-old who babysits neighbor kids. I thought it'd be hot. Spice up our sex life for me to fuck her. And if you want to fuck her too, that's, uh, that's even more hot. You know, you could at least hold her down. Maybe lure her over here or something. I mean, can you imagine hearing any version of that and not leaving? Yikes. If Charlene really is more victim than villain in this story, uh, then this was the uh, moment she really, really should have been stronger and just ended her toxic relationship with the psychopath. Uh, back to the spring of 1978, that April, Charlene and Gerald uh, go with her parents to the annual grocer's banquet in Sacramento. Charles Williams, old Chuck, old Chucky. He used this opportunity to introduce his daughter's super cool boyfriend to a business associate uh, associate in a lo- local meat company. There's the words I wanted. Uh, Chuck once again wanted to take care of sweet Charlene, this time by getting her boyfriend a job. Jared Bear is offered a job as a route driver for the meat company at uh, 11 bucks an hour, which he accepted. That was good money back then. Minimum wage was $2.65 an hour. Now that he has steady income, Jerry decides to rent his own apartment on Watt Avenue, where he will live with his, own do- uh, with his daughter, uh, Krista, who is now 14. Uh, remember how she's been living with uh, Jerry's mom, Lorraine, 
She has been spending time off and on with her dad, depending on whether or not he's in prison, how stable his life and income are this whole time. Uh, and Gerald, if you recall from our pre-timeline discussion, not a good dad. Uh, he's been raping Krista for years. Two days before Gerald began his new job, a friend of Krista's named Angie came to stay with them for a couple weeks. And Angie, also 14 years old, will later tell authorities that Jerry molested her twice during the visit. That motherfucker. Uh, the fantasies he was talking about with Charlene, uh, they weren't things he was just thinking about trying. They were things he was already doing. And Charlene may have been having similar fantasies, according to what Jerry would later say at trial. And of course, he might have just been trying to save his own ass and lying. But he didn't make up a ton of wild accusations, actually. actually. Uh, he said that in the summer of 1978, uh, that uh, Gerald, that he decided to pay you know, Charlene a surprise visit and then caught her in bed with an underage girl. Jerry said he beat both of them, kicked the lover out, and then beat Charlene again. Obviously, the beating part fucked up. But if he was lying, like, why would he include those details? Seems like he would leave the beating part out if this was a made-up story. I don't know. If he's telling the truth, man, does that change how Charlene's involvement and what they will later do together needs to be viewed. Right? If this is true, it gives her personal sexual motivation for their later, you know, sex crimes. Makes her a monster, you know, on par with the monster that uh, he is. On July 17th, Gerald will celebrate his 32nd birthday uh, by sodomizing his daughter. She will later testify that Jerry had started molesting her again when she was only six. So take away all of his murders and this dude still deserves uh, to die. That same month, it looks like this monster will become a father again. Charlene gets pregnant. Jerry doesn't want it, but she decides for the moment to keep it. Uh, Early the next month, August 2nd, 1978, Jerry quits uh, the job his girlfriend's dad helped him get. Didn't have another job lined up, just didn't seem to care for honest work. A couple weeks later, Krista thankfully moves back in with Jerry's mom. Now Jerry wants to take his darkness further. I just get some free time. Uh, A year and a day after their first meeting, the couple will perform their first heinous act together. September 11th, 1978. Charlene, two months pregnant, experiencing morning sickness. Jerry is determined not to let that minor inconvenience derail his new plans for them. Or as he would later claim, uh, their plans. They took the 1973 Dodge recreational van that Charlene had bought with the help of a loan co-signed by good old Chuck. The van had plenty of room in the back. Charlene and Jerry... I've had sex in it a few times, given it some nice test runs. The two now drove through a parking lot by the Country Club Plaza Shopping Center. Sorry, County Club Plaza Shopping Center. It's still there, 2310 Watt Avenue. Described on Google reviews as a low-key mall with a discount supermarket, movie theater, trampoline park, and a Planet Fitness. Gerald went over their plan. Right, He told Charlene to find some sweet, attractive girls. Not women, girls. Uh, get them to come over to the van. He said he'd take it from there. And Charlene went along with this. She didn't have to, but she did. She willingly went out, picked up girls to lure them back to a monster who she knew was going to at least rape them and probably knew was going to kill them. She never claimed she was afraid for her life if she didn't do this. Again, hard to feel sympathy for her. Charlene met lured young friend, 17-year-old Rhonda Scheffler, 16-year-old Kippy Vaught out of of the mall by promising them some weed. Uh, Shortly before this, Jerry bought some adhesive tape from a local store, Rhonda and Kippy stepped back into the van, uh, found themselves on the bad end of Gerald's 25 caliber pistol, told the girls to stay quiet, made them lie face down. Uh, they did as asked, then bound their hands and feet with tape. Charlene sat on an ice chest, stood guard. If it uh, you know, wasn't for her, these girls would have never met this monster. Soon they were off and driving, pulling out onto I-80, Interstate 80, heading east towards the Sierra Nevada mountains. The van pulled off the road near the town of Box- Baxter, California, 60 miles northeast of Sacramento, and then headed out into the wilderness. Once they found a remote and secluded place to park, Gerald untied the girls, ordered them to start walking towards a group of trees. Charlene waited by the van while Gerald followed the girls carrying a sleeping bag, blanket, and gun. Gerald then proceeded, of course, to rape them multiple times. 
Meanwhile, Charlene drove off back to Sacramento, visited an old friend like fucking nothing was wrong, dropped off the van at home, then headed back to Baxter and then passed out to the wilderness in her Oldsmobile. Cold blooded. Oh, what are you doing this afternoon, Charlene? Ah, just killing a few hours right now while Jer Bear rapes a couple girls in the woods that I uh, met them all this morning. Do you have any coffee? I got to drive back and uh, probably help kill them. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm tired. Uh, when Charlene did get back, Gerald marched the girls into the Oldsmobile. He'd been raping them for hours now. They then drove to Slough House. Uh, it's a small, unincorporated farming area on the other side of Sacramento. Uh, once in a remote part of this area, Gerald ordered the girls out of the van again. I, cannot, I can't imagine how traumatized and scared they were, how much they begged for their lives on the ride over uh, or tried, you know, if their mouths were taped shut. Can't imagine how frightened they looked, tear-stained faces, probably had bloody, brutalized bodies. Charlene just, uh, you know, been sitting in the car with them, knowing Gerald was going to kill them. And then he did. Shot them both in the head. The bodies of Rhonda and Kippy would be found just two days later, September 13th, 1978. Migrant farm workers, Aurelio Sanchez, uh, Julio Martinez, spotted the remains of the young women in clumps of dead grass in a meadow not far from the farm where they worked. By the time they, the call came into police uh, saying that two bodies had been discovered, Gregory Scheffler, the 19-year-old husband of Rhonda, had already reported his wife missing uh, when she didn't show up when he came to pick her up from work. Gregory uh, had then phoned Kippy's mother and the two had walked around the county club plaza mall area for hours searching for their loved ones. They saw Rhonda's Vega in the parking lot, but there was no sign of either of the two girls. And I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm, I can't read today. Apparently, It is country club plaza. I'm like, county club does not sound. <laughs> I'm sure people, some of you in Sacramento is like fucking county club plaza. No, bro. Country club plaza. Sorry, that was bothering me. Um, so yeah, so uh, they see Rhonda of uh, Rhonda's Vega in the parking lot. No sign of either of the two girls. Um, you know, and then to find out later that, uh, they've been obviously killed. Autopsy reveals that both the girls have been sexually assaulted, bludgeoned. That motherfucker had beaten them while they raped them, of course. And then they have been shot to death. One of the victims had a bullet wound behind the left ear, bullet grazing the skull, second and fatal bullet fired at close range into the back of her head. A bad tip, a call in from a woman who said she had seen Rhonda and Kippy talking to a, uh, black man would prevent the police from having any idea the Galegos were responsible. Meanwhile, in the days following the murders, Gerald and Charlene dumped the victim's possessions and Gerald's gun that, you know, Charlene had bought in the Sacramento River. In the following weeks, Charlene gets an abortion. She will claim later that Gerald forced her to get one. Uh, the two then spent some time uh, along the Oregon coast with friends, just partying it up like they just, had, like they just hadn't uh, killed two teens. Even though they don't have to worry about the murders at this time, a few days later, Gerald has a different problem to deal with. September 27th. 1978, his daughter Krista tells Detective Sergeant Dan Young of the Butte County Sheriff's Office that her father had been molesting her since she was six years old, bringing forward charges of incest, sodomy, oral copulation, and unlawful intercourse. Lorraine calls up her son, pleads with him to get help, should have begged him to put a fucking gun in his mouth and pull the trigger. I don't know if you know this, but that's the most effective treatment for pedophiles. Most effective pedophile therapy known to man is for them to fucking take themselves out. 100% success rate. Uh, when Gerald and Charlene passed by Lorraine's house on the way back from Oregon, Lorraine's husband, Ed Davies, didn't feel so compassionate towards Gerald, grabbed a rifle from his tool shed when they pulled up, got out of the van, and then he shouted, I'm going to blow your damned head off. Apparently, uh, Gerald uh, knew he was serious, and he and Charlene ran to the van and sped off. I like Ed. Uh, three days after Chris's confession, September 30th, 1978, Jer Bear and Charlene, of course, get married. They get married in Reno. <laughs> Knowing what he had done to those teens, Charlene had to know that Gerald was also guilty of fucking his own kid for years and she still marries him. Shit like that makes me think that she was not just along for the ride. She liked it. 
She's a fucking monster too. Uh, in attendance were Charlene's parents, of course, Chuck and Mercedes. Right, they, uh, they're they coming across less and less as decent people as uh, as we march further down this timeline. At the very least, they seem real fucking stupid. Charlene convinced her parents that, uh, you know, Jerry was innocent of the charges of molesting his daughter. Convinced them to help out by getting Jerry a fake birth certificate, that of Stephen Robert Feel. Charlene has some dirt on her dad. Why is he fucking helping to this degree? Anyone else starting to uh, think that? Did he uh, go along with whatever his daughter, his female namesake wanted, maybe because he had uh, molested her or something? Is that what uh, made Charlene, you know, uh, be attracted to Gerald later? I mean, he doesn't say that, even allude to that in sources. Just something I've been wondering about between Papa Chuck and Lady Chuck. Uh, With the new name change, now Gerald doesn't have as much to fear when an arrest warrant is issued for Gerald Gallego on October 9th, 1978. He's not Jerry anymore. Jerry's gone. You know, and again, the charges include incest, sodomy, oral copulation, all the shit he did to his daughter. Bail set at $50,000. Knowing they need to probably stay low, though, Gerald and Charlene pack up a few other things, head to Houston. Where fucking Chuck gets Gerald another another job. So cool, cool. Helping a man wanted for raping his own daughter for years. A dude convicted of multiple felonies, get a new identity, and get another job. Awesome. Like many of Gerald's jobs, it wouldn't last. It was a bartending job at Whiskey Junction, a popular Houston nightclub. Uh, Charlene stayed at home. Uh, one night at Whiskey Junction, shortly after taking the job, Gerald, being Gerald, uh, beat the shit out of a fellow bartender and then didn't uh, come in for work the next day. Uh, the shit show couple now moved on to Reno where fucking Chuck gets Gerald another job, driving a truck for a meat plant. They rent a condo in nearby Sparks. In April of 1979, Charlene gets a job working for a different meat company as a receptionist and sales rep. Daddy got her this as well, of course. A month in, Jerry loses, wouldn't you know it, another job. No reason is listed in sources. Maybe they had a policy against uh, tying teens up and beating and raping and killing them or something. Uh, Now unemployed again, Jerry's bored, restless, starts looking for another victim. With extra time on his hands, he and Charlene develop another rape and murder plan. June 24th, Father's Day. Father's Day. Charlene and Gerald cruise the street to Reno in the van, arriving at the Washoe County Fairgrounds. This time, Charlene's supposed to go around and pretend to look for people who do who uh, are willing to distribute handbills on car windshields for a few bucks. So she approaches two girls, Brenda Lynn Judd, 14, and Sandra K. Colley, 13 fucking years old, and Charlene feeds them some bullshit about the handbills job. Charlene and the girls now go from car to car for a couple minutes, you know, working their way unbeknownst to the girls to uh, Gerald's van. Now, how does Charlene look, right? If she had any doubts about the first double homicide, she doesn't now. She knows exactly what these girls are in store for. When the girls make it to the van, Gerald sneaks up behind them, armed with a 44 caliber pistol, pistol now. Again, he tells them to keep quiet, tells them to get in the van. As the girls climb into the back of the van, they see a mattress on the empty back floor and Jerry tells them to lie down on the mattress and then he binds their hands and feet. With the girls in the van, after driving away from the fairgrounds, Jerry makes a stop at a store to buy a shovel and a hammer. Terrifying. Now they're off again, back on I-80. Now this time, taking his thrill-seeking further, instead of waiting for a quiet place in the wilderness, while Charlene drives, Jerry climbs into the back and begins to rape the bound girls. They finally stop somewhere in the Nevada desert. Gerald disappears with one girl, then comes back alone. How absolutely horrifying for the second girl. Turns for the other girl, takes her out of the desert along with the hammer and shovel, right? Make sure uh, that she knows exactly what's going to happen, apparently. Fucking hammer. This whole time, uh, Charlene, just chilling around the van, you know, just playing lookout. She could have driven to the police, right? Could have for sure sent into prison. She could have at least saved one of the girls. When Jerry took the first one out, she could have fucking drove away with the second, you know, and had him arrested, sent away for life for multiple killings, saved this girl instead. She, she stood by her man. A song just popped back into my head. It's, it's too dark for me currently to want a parody 
but I'm, it won't stop playing in my head. Meanwhile, friend who had uh, come to meet Sandra and Brenda by the entrance at the Washoe County Fair is now confused that evening. Finally reports the two is missing to the Reno Police Department. The police suspect the two girls had simply ran away, even though neither of them had a history of running away. Uh, despite thinking that the police did make a search effort, searching the city, interviewing fairground employees, tracking down any leads they could find. One took them all the way to Salt Lake City. Uh, weird rumored circulated the two girls had run away to join a, join a carnival. They made it out that way. Apparently two Reno girls had actually done that recently, not just uh, just not Brenda and Sandra. And that reads is so sad to me. How, how bad is your home life for joining a fucking traveling carnival? Sound like a better option. Uh, Charlene and Gerald, meanwhile, get to uh, covering their tracks. Charlene thoroughly cleans the van inside and out, right? Stand by your man. Help him wash the blood out and make sure he can kill again. Uh, July 2nd, 1979, Gerald gets a job posing as Stephen Feel now for a soft drink bottling company as a driver. Sources don't say that Chuck got in this job, but probably... Uh, surprising, I know, but Gerald won't keep this job very long. Gerald and Charlene both quit their jobs in early September of 1979, returned to Sacramento. The heat on Jerbear had died down a bit. Some of Charlene's old acquaintances are not thrilled to see her back. According to them later, she had changed. I bet helping four teens get raped and murdered. Probably gonna do that to you. They said she had, uh, uh, you know, she would now lose her temper often and used abusive language. Uh, the warrant for Jerry uh, that actually came out of Chico for the crimes against Krista was still out. Uh, and so Gerald, Gerald continues to use his new identity. Uh, he and Charlene move into an apartment posing as Mr. and Mrs. Stephen Field on Wood Hollow Way, early October, 1979. And for the next three months, Gerald will, will again work as a truck driver. Incredibly, he's able to stay employed in one place for that long. Uh, Jerry Bear also amasses a new collection of weapons. He can buy weapons under his new identity now. Uh, include a 357 Magnum Colt Python, 38 revolver, AR-15 rifle, another 25 caliber handgun. Uh, also applies for a, uh, you know, he, he was able to do this because he was able to apply for a driver's license as Stephen Robert file and uh, and got it. The alias Chuck helped him with was a good one. Right? How the fuck did Chuck know how to get that done? How to get uh, a good fake birth certificate? Maybe Jerry knew and Chuck just paid for it. Uh, a few days before Christmas, 1979, Gerald as Stephen file uh, gets a job as a bartender again. As the at the uh, Bob Les Club on Del Paso Boulevard, it would later be revealed that it was a it was common knowledge among club employees that Jerry was regularly seeing other women, including a woman named Patty, that he wh- whom he got pregnant uh, during his time working there. And I don't and I will say, I don't fucking believe that. Jerry Bear, no fucking way he would cheat on Charlene. He's a lot of things, but disloyal. Mm-mm. I can't believe his coworkers would tarnish his name like that. Uh, March twenty eighth, nineteen eighty, Charlene buys a second twenty five caliber automatic pistol at a Sacramento sporting goods store in Arden Way. And why is she buying a gun now, right? Don't they have enough? Does she want to pull the trigger? Or is she worried that she might uh, she might need it for Gerald in case he turns on her? Who knows? Uh, four weeks later, April 24th, 1980, the Gallegos get up early, have breakfast, set out to commit another double murder. Gerald always wanting two girls. Before they leave, Jerry takes a white macrame rope from the closet by the front door, stuffs it into his pocket along with his 357 Magnum revolver. He and Charlene then drive for a while in the van before ending up at Sunrise Mall, located in Citrus Heights, a growing suburb, uh, suburban city, technically just outside of Sacramento. The Sunrise Mall was at the time the largest indoor mall in Sacramento County. Thought it was the perfect place to find a couple new victims using the old marijuana ruse. They soon came upon Karen Chipman, Karen Chipman Twiggs, excuse me, and Stacy Ann Redcap, both 17. The girls had recently gotten jobs at uh, fast food restaurants, decided to spend their paychecks at the mall and hang out. Once again, Charlene asked him if they wanted to go smoke out. 
They agree. They follow her to the van where Jerry is waiting with the gun. Same old shit. He orders them to keep quiet, get in the fucking van. Doesn't tie him up this time. Uh, like with the last two victims, Charlene cruises down I-80 as Gerald climbs into the back and rapes them both after ordering them to strip this time. Did Charlene enjoy what she was seeing in the rearview mirror? I wonder that. Uh, the van will reach Reno by nightfall. Once there, Charlene pulls the van off the interstate so they can stop at a supermarket. Now there, uh, Jerry binds the girl's hands with macra- mac- macrame rope uh, and then goes to buy some cigarettes. And can you guess what else? Yes. Fucking new hammer. Jesus Christ. Uh, they hit the road again, Charlene driving and Gerald raping until they reach Limerick Canyon near Lovelock, Nevada, about 90 miles northeast of Reno. Now, uh, once again, they find a secluded area to park the van. Gerald first leads one girl into the darkness, then returns alone, coming back from the other. I'm, I'm sure he got off on the fear this separation created, the tension it built, the apprehension. But I don't feel jaded by all the previous true crime topics today, right? Still feel shocked by the depravity of this shit. Still, still wishing nothing but pain and misery on these fucks. These Charlene and Gerald. Afterwards, Charlene, uh, Charlene cleans out the van again. On the way back to Sacramento, Gerald throws the hammer out the window. Uh, meanwhile, Carol Twiggs, Karen's mother, is getting nervous. She was supposed to meet with her daughter that afternoon at the Sunrise Mall. Karen was a no-show. Carol searches for the girls but finds nothing. That night, April 24th, she goes to the Sacramento Police Department and reports Karen and Stacy is missing. Once again, there's a theory that both the girls are runaways. Stacy did have a history of running away. Karen had never done that. Though police thought that maybe Stacy had managed to convince Karen to come with her this time. Uh, police did circulate photos of the girls throughout the country, but nothing turns up for months. Now Charlene starts to suspect that she's pregnant again. Why the fuck is she not on birth control? You know what? I'm going to answer my own question. She is not making logical decisions about anything. Why would she make any good choice? Uh, Saturday, May 31st, 1980, the Glegos and a couple of friends make plans to go rafting down the American River. When they get rained out, they wind up at Gerald and Charlene's apartment for a drinking party instead. There, uh, Gerald announces to the room that he wants to marry Charlene. And the group has no idea they are already married. What is happening? The four then head to Reno and arrive at the Washoe County Courthouse just after midnight. There, just after the, uh, again, midnight on June 1st, 1980, at the heart of Reno Wedding Chapel, Charlene and Gerald get married. Again, they're still married. Uh, Gerald wore a black three-piece suit. Charlene wore a green silk gown, white shawl. Mary Charlene for the second time. Now a Stephen file. Right? Wouldn't, wouldn't she kind of be guilty of polygamy now? Uh, Charlene, six weeks pregnant, uh, along with Gerald, has some friends over to celebrate their extra marriage. They have steak, drinks, and snort some coke. There's no reason to let a pregnancy slow down the coke party. There is. There's a lot of reasons. Uh, the group also plans a trip to the uh, Oregon coast, but no one else can make it. So, you know, Charlene and Jerry Bear decide to go it alone. Maybe kill a person or two while they're at it. June 7th, 1980, uh, Chuck and uh, Lady Chuck and Jerry reach Gold Beach, Oregon. There they spot Linda Aguilar. 21-year-old woman with long flowing hair walking by the side of the road. They notice that she's pregnant about four months along with her second child. Uh, she had picked up some items from a local store, was on her way home. She wasn't really Jerry's type. Uh, it was two teen girls he preferred, but uh, I guess, you know, he saw that she was alone. He was horny and just kind of figured, ah, fuck it. Why not just rape and kill her? He didn't have anything else, you know, penciled in on his calendar at that time. I'm sure he didn't think those exact thoughts, but he was that casual and cold-blooded about killing people. These girls, women, were not a, a, autonomous beings to him. They were just playthings to do with whatever he wished. Their lives meant no more to him than the life of a housefly means to most of us. Uh, shortly after driving across the Rogue River Bridge, Charlene takes the wheel. Jerry reaches over for his 357. A little ways down the road, Charlene pulls over uh, while Gerald rapes Linda after they abduct her, of course. Then they drive for a while longer before reaching a sandy, isolated strip where Jerry forces Linda out of the van, leads her to a rock formation out of view of the road, and then uh, you know beats her with a rock and strangles her. 
but doesn't kill her. Not completely, not through those acts. No, he takes a shovel out of the van and he literally buries her alive. Sand found in her lungs would later reveal the, this last horrific detail to authorities. Uh, just like so many of our past true crime, uh, you know, time suck topics, Rodney uh, Alcala, uh, Richard Ramirez, Robert Berdella, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this guy is full fucking evil. And maybe Charlene is too. He'd say at the trial that she took part in all these killings. Uh, you know, ugh, it would become a classic. Uh, he said, she said, uh, Charlene and Gerald would be long gone by the time police found Linda's body. They tossed Linda's belongings out of the van on their way home. June 22nd, 1980. Some German tourists discover Linda's remains. The police immediately suspect her live-in boyfriend, Rick, uh, who was known to abuse her and did not seem all that troubled by her disappearance. So, you know, that's fucking great. Uh, Linda lived with one piece of shit, dude, and then was killed by another. Uh, Rick was in California when Linda's remains were found. He returned a bit later, cooperated with Curry County Sheriff's Department. Unfortunately for him, police had started putting together a case against him. Uh, They found bloodstains in the bedroom of their trailer, and Rick failed a lie detector test and was charged with Linda's murder. Luckily, kind of, this guy sounds like a fucking dirtbag. Another witness would then come forward and say that uh, Linda had been seen um, or, you know, she was she was driving along uh, past Gold Beach, saw Linda, was about to pick her up uh, when she got into this other van. And I'm sorry, I said she was a he, this other guy, this witness was a male, saw Linda along uh, the road when he was driving, you know, through Gold Beach and saw Linda, you know. Uh, get in this other van before he could pick her up. Under hypnosis, this witness would say that the driver was a muscular man and that there was a, a smaller woman beside him. But when police looked into the van, which the man had erroneously described as yellow instead of off-white, the search turned up nothing. A month later, June, or excuse me, July 17th, 1980, another woman disappears. Uh, again, just one. And again, not a teen. It seems as if Gerald's fantasy has possibly uh, shifted a bit. 34-year-old Virginia Mokel goes missing. It was just after two in the morning. Virginia was locking up for the night. Uh, she was a mother of two, a bartender who disappeared after closing the Sale Inn Tavern where she worked in West Sacramento. On July 23rd, detectives interviewed two customers who were at the tavern that night. The customers' names were Stephen Robert File and a woman who said she was his girlfriend, Charlene Gallego. So that's fun, right? They can be, sometimes Charlene can be, you know, his girlfriend. Sometimes she can be Charlene File, his wife. Lots of role-playing for these two. Uh, they've been driving a van that night, said that they'd spent a few hours fishing in the Sacramento River, hoping to catch something worthwhile. In between long waits, they drank themselves silly. Uh, then they abandoned their fishing trip and came to the sail in. Both said they knew nothing about her disappearance, so the police didn't list them as suspects. Of course, in reality, they had abducted her, taking her at gunpoint uh, that night as she closed up. As they drove away, Virginia, according to Charlene's later testimony, tried to talk about her kids, anything to get her captors, to see that she was a human being, someone with a family who loved her. She had hoped they would take pity on her, but they didn't. Instead, they'd parked their car by, their, by her, uh, their apartment on Wood Hollow Way. Charlene went inside while Gerald, drunk after hours in the bar, raped Virginia in the van, then strangled her with his bare hands. The couple then drove to an area near a levee road outside Clarksburg, a little census-designated place just south of Sacramento. Gerald disposed of the body, now naked, and sources say mangled for reasons never made clear. And then they head back home. Probably slept like babies. July 27th, 1980, more than three months after Nevada teenagers Karen Twiggs and Stacy Redcap disappeared, a group on a picnic discovers their coyote-ravaged remains in two shallow graves outside of Lovelock. They've been raped, suffered massive and fatal head injuries. Fucking hammer. Uh, one girl's hands were tied behind her back, the other's hands uh, missing entirely. The bodies were identified in autopsy, uh, but there were no solid clues leading investigators to their killers because of the state of the remains. August 1980, early August, 23 months into their rape and murder spree, the couple sells their rape and death van to another couple in Orangevale, 
an outer suburb of Sacramento. Inside the van, the new owners immediately find a blood-soaked sheet and a bloody mattress. Wow. How fucking sloppy. I mean, are Gerald and Charlene just fucked up all the time, just drunk all the time? Now what's going on? The new owners of the murder van immediately turn over this evidence to authorities. Also that August, Gerald loses his cool with Charlene in the presence of her mom, Mercedes. After a long argument, uh, Jerry grabs Charlene by the throat and uh, Mercedes does not take that lightly. She springs into action, grabs a nearby pistol, pistol whips Jerry repeatedly on the side of the head. Did not see that coming. Going through the story the first time. Uh, I had a very different mental image of Mercedes <laughs> than I do, uh, you know, did after finding that out. Instead of getting the fuck out of there, Charlene starts to tend to Gerald's wounds now. Later, I bet Mercedes would feel pretty damn lucky that Jerry didn't really snap and show the monster he had hid from her. Uh, if she wasn't Chuck's mom, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that he would have killed her. September of 1980, Charlene leaves Gerald. Oh, Lady Chuck packs up her belongings and moves in with her parents. Gerald decides to leave California for a while, as does his pregnant girlfriend, Patty, still hanging around her, the lady he was, you know, uh, having sex with on the side when he worked at the bar. Uh, they head to Oregon, but surprise, surprise, don't have a great time. And Jerry sends Patty packing, sends her back after just a few days because he's a fucking maniac. Uh, I watched their episode of Born to Kill, a British true crime docuseries called Gerald and Charlene Gallego, The Love Slave Killers. And an anonymous childhood acquaintance of Gerald said he was always terrible. As a kid, as a teen, always scary, mean, quarrelsome, you name it. Based on who his dad was, I mean, was he just born fucked up? Like, you know, some people are born without sight, born without arms, etc. Was he born missing connections in his brain that keep, keep most of us from just doing all the sadistic, horrible shit he did? Did he not have the ability to form and maintain stable relationships on some kind of genetic level? Incredibly poor impulse control, no empathy, inability to perceive social interactions and the attentions of others in a normal way, a, a violent temper, et cetera, et cetera. October 3rd, 1980, Virginia's body is found uh, near Clarksburg in southeastern Yolo County. Uh, the woman Gerald and Charlene kidnapped as she was closing that bar, the Sail Inn Tavern. Fishermen discovered her nude, decomposed remains in some thick brush. Her hands were bound behind her back with fishing wire. And the advanced decomposition made it impossible to tell her cause of death or whether or not she'd been sexually assaulted. Gerald returns to Sacramento in the fall of 1980 and on October 7th, rents an apartment on Bluebird Lane. I wonder if he uh, killed anyone authorities never found out about during his time away from Charlene. Uh, it didn't take long for, for him and Lady Chuck to meet up again. And, and this makes me think that Charlene enjoyed the killings uh, or at least wasn't really bothered by them more than any other detail. I mean, she got away. She, she could have stayed away. She could have easily turned him in. Again, but didn't. She took him back. Also carrying his child around five months pregnant. Why didn't he force her to get rid of this uh, second child if he supposedly forced her to get rid of the first one? A lot of Charlene's story doesn't add up for me. Uh, that might stop, you know, some women from helping their baby daddy do more uh, raping and killing, you know, being that pregnant. But not, not Charlene, not Lady Chuck. Stand by your man. Oh, no one took that Tammy Wynette classic more serious than Charlene Gallego. Holy shit. Charlene, uh, also my mom's name. By the way, that has been messed with me a bit this episode. I would like to think that she has never helped anyone do any murdering, but I was just a baby when this shit went down. I have no real idea uh, what she was capable of around that time, you know? And she was married to my dad at this time. You know, she was married to my dad actually during the entirety of this murder spree we've gone over today. And, uh, you know, it's almost 100% certainty that my dad's a killer. We know that now. I mean, too many people, as I've illustrated, have died when his whereabouts uh, cannot be accounted for. Did Gerald and Charlene Gallego get blamed for horrific crimes actually committed by my fucking parents? Did they catch the wrong Charlene? 
What the fuck, Chuck? No, mama, no. Bad mom. Bad mother. Uh, I'm back now. Shortly after midnight, November 2nd, 1980, Craig Miller, Mary Beth Sowers had just left a Sigma Phi Epsilon fraternity function at the Arden Fair Mall in Sacramento. Still there today, that mall, 1689 Arden Way. Well, this, is a, this is a big boy, uh, big girl mall. Opening in 1957, it has over 150 shops and restaurants today. Uh, that Saturday, Arden Fair was the place to be. The carousel restaurant located at the east end of the shopping center had been transformed for uh, the night into a Founder's Day dinner and dance celebration. And Craig Miller and Mary Beth Sowers had had a good time. To their friends, they seemed like the all-American ideal couple. Craig was 22, Mary Beth 21. Uh, the two were engaged to be married on New Year's Eve 1981. Mary Beth had been a, a runner-up in the Miss Shasta County Beauty Contest. Now she was a finance major who worked during the week at Arco Financial Services and worked more on the weekends at JCPenney. Hardworking, smart, studious, good person, beautiful, seemed to have it all. During the winter, she also worked as a ski instructor at Boreal Ridge, a ski area east of Sacramento. I'm probably butchering how to say the name of that ski area. Uh, no, no shortage of grind in Mary Beth. So hail Nimrod. Got to respect that ethic. Uh, Craig, also hardworking dude. An accounting executive at Miller Advertising and had been the vice president of the campus chapter of Sigma Epsilon, uh, even their 1979 Man of the Year. And he worked weekends at a paint store in Carmichael. Uh, the two, probably thinking about their many responsibilities, decided to head home early just after midnight. A couple minutes after they left, another fraternity brother walked onto the street, noticed something weird. Noticed that Craig and Mary Beth were sitting in the back of an Oldsmobile Cutlass, not in Mary Beth's red Honda. And there were two strangers in the front seat, a woman driving and a man beside her. The fraternity brother approached, asked the two people in the front seat what was going on, but then the car sped off quickly before anyone answered him. Dude was lucky he didn't get shot in the face right there. Uh, the two people in the front, set, uh, front seat, of course, were Charlene and Gerald Gallego. And that would be the last time that anyone would see Craig or Mary Beth alive, other than the Gallegos. Uh, Charlene pulled onto US 50, headed east. Traffic was light. It was the middle of the night. Uh, Gerald demanded that Craig hand over his wallet. Craig threw Mary Beth's car keys out of the window to try and help alert authorities to their abduction. That sadly would not help them at all. Uh, soon, Charlene pulled off the highway at Bass Lake Road exit, uh, at the Bass Lake Road exit, driving until Gerald directed her to stop in the middle of a gravel road with no one else in sight. Gerald ordered, ordered Craig to start walking. He did as he was told, or at least started to. Didn't take more than two steps before Gerald shot him point blank in the back of the head. Gerald then stood over his body, fired more shots, uh, he, Charlene, and an absolutely terrified and hysterical Mary Beth now drove back to the Glego's apartment, leaving Craig's body, right, just uh, on the road, side of the road. In the back seat along the way, Gerald raped a grieving Mary Beth while Charlene drove. Once they reached the apartment, Jerry took uh, Mary Beth into the bedroom where he will rape and beat her for several hours. Then in the middle of the night, he forces her back into the car and he, Mary Beth, and Charlene, hopefully not my mom, Charlene, but I don't fucking know for sure, began the long drive towards Reno, Gerald holding a 25 caliber in his hand the whole way. Uh, they get off the interstate near Sierra College in Placer County. My mom or some other Charlene then drives to the end of an isolated road where Jerry takes Mary Beth into a pasture. After possibly raping her again, he shoots her three times, leaves her body, and then alone returns to the car. The couple then drives back to their apartment just to do some uh, cleaning up. You know, no big whoops. Uh, Gerald would throw the couple's belongings into the Sacramento River as well that morning. Craig fails to show up for his 10 a.m. shift, of course, at the paint store in Carmichael. Uh, this was not like him at all. He was a very reliable, dependable employee. Worried, his mom now calls the police. When the couple doesn't come back to get Craig's, uh, or sorry, to get uh, Mary Beth's Honda that afternoon, the friend who'd seen them get into the mysterious car reports them missing. He thought to write down the license plate, so the police tracked down the Oldsmobile Cutlass and discovered that it was registered to Charles Williams. Fucking Chuck. 
Detectives Lee Taylor, Larry Burchett now drive to the home of Charles and Mercedes on Barendo Drive in Arden Park. Chuck and Mercedes say that the uh, car belonged to their daughter, Charlene. So probably not my mom. So that's good. And then she had left and that she had left home at about 630 in the evening on Saturday, November 1st to go to a movie with her boyfriend, a man named Stephen Robert Feel. Uh, and I don't know how to say his last name because it's, it's part of it. It's a made up name. Uh, uh, weird that uh, they just said he was uh, their boyfriend, right? That they were they were married twice, actually. Uh, to the detective's surprise, as they talked to Charles and Mercedes, Charlene drove up in the car in question. So, so much for that movie. Uh, Charlene, not who the detectives were expecting to see. 24, blonde, petite, seven months pregnant. Not the type of person they thought who'd be involved in a, uh, you know, disappearance. She also claimed that she had been driving her boyfriend's red Triumph the day before, not the Cutlass. Uh, Charlene denied knowing anything about Craig or Mary Beth. Uh, allowed the detectives to search her car. There was no evidence of anything that had happened in the Oldsmobile. While they searched, Charlene complained of pregnancy sickness and a hangover. Uh, man, different time. Uh, people clearly not worried as much about fetal alcohol syndrome back then. <laughs> Sorry, detectives. Oh, I am hungover as shit. I was hoping that my baby could take at least a few of the shots for me last night, but this old fucker's useless when it comes to partying. I'm going to head to the bathroom right now. I think we're both going to be puking. Uh, without much to go on, the detectives told Charlene that they would come back and photograph her later that day. Back at the police station, investigators run a check on the license number of the Triumph that Charlene had mentioned. It pops up as belonging to Stephen Robert File. Uh, detectives now go over to Stephen File's apartment, but he's not there. They leave a note for him to call as soon as he uh, returns. Then around 4.30, they go back to Charles and Mercedes' house, hoping to photograph their daughter, but the parents now say that, you know, Charlene's not home. When questioned about Stephen Files, Char- uh, Charles Williams admits that Charlene was actually married to him and that he was the father of her baby. Why hide that from detectives earlier? Uh, before the detectives could ask that very question, their interview was interrupted by a horrific discovery they're alerted to. A message on the police radio says that a body has been found near Bass Lake. That same afternoon, Craig's body had been discovered alongside a gravel road 20 miles from Placer, uh, Placerville near Bass Lake in El Dorado County, California. Right, He'd been, as we know now, uh, shot multiple times at point blank range, three times actually. Uh, autopsy would confirm that he'd been shot once above the right ear, once in the back of the neck, once in the right cheekbone. Mary Beth's still missing. Meanwhile, Charlene and Gerald are kind of nervous about getting caught, but not real nervous yet. They've decided that as long as the detectives don't find Craig or Mary Beth's bodies, they'll be fine. And they don't know that Craig's body has been found now. Uh, so they go to move that body. They retrace their steps along US 50 and Bass Lake Road. And then when they get to the spot where they had killed or where he had killed, you know, Craig Miller only a few hours earlier, nobody. So they now come to the obvious conclusion that Craig has probably come back to life as a zombie, maybe a vampire, but probably zombie. They rush to some local stores and, and a church to get supplies, a machete and an ax in case they're dealing with a zombie, wooden stakes, garlic, holy water, in case, just in case he's a vampire. And then Charlene starts to argue with Gerald. She thinks there's a small chance that Craig could actually be a werewolf, which sets off, you know, a fucking huge fight. Gerald thinks she's being crazy. He tells her, they don't have time to fuck around. We gotta be serious, Charlene. We gotta head home, board our door closed, also nail boards across the windows. Prepare for an inevitable fight with the undead. Stop with your stupid werewolf bullshit. Anyway, that, that never happened. You know that. I wish that story uh, this story took a weird turn, that weird for some comic relief. No, uh, Gerald and Charlene both noticed signs that the ground around uh, them looked different now. Footprints, tire tracks, cigarette butts. Uh, they conclude that the cops had probably already gotten there and taken Craig's body. And so they decide to get the fuck out of Dodge. Later the same day, November 3rd, 1980, Charles and Mercedes, Chuck and Pistol Whip, admit to detectives that the man their daughter is married to is not Stephen File. 
It is actually 34-year-old Gerald Gallego, uh, currently wanted on incest charges. When they decided to tell authorities, uh, or why they decided to tell authorities this now, uh, not before, is not made clear. Investigators learned of the charges Gerald faces in Butte County and his extensive criminal history. They also know that in neighboring Yolo County, authorities are investigating Stephen File in the connection to a kidnapping murder of Virginia Mokel, a local bar- bartender. Meanwhile, loyal to their daughter to the bitter fucking end, Chuck and Pistol Whip help Charlene and Gerald sneak out of town. What the fuck is wrong with them? On the evening of November 3rd, the Williamses meet Charlene and Gerald in a parking lot in Fair Oaks, a suburb of Sacramento. Charlene tells her parents uh, that the cops are trying to pin the murder on Jerry because of all the previous bullshit charges. And the Williamses uh, give them some money and clothes and the Gallegos are off. They drive the Oldsmobile east down Highway 50 uh, towards the Sierras. In Reno, the Gallegos dump the car in the Circus Circus Casino Hotel parking lot. Charlene phones her parents, tells them where to find it. There, uh, they take a Greyhound bus to Salt Lake City, Utah. Once in Salt Lake, Charlene again calls her parents for money, lies and says she needs it to come home now. I'll come home now. They wire her $500 to a Western Union office in Salt Lake City. Then Charlene and Gerald, of course, uh, you know, use the money to stay on the run. From Utah, they take a bus to Denver before taking another one to Omaha, Nebraska. November 5th, El Dorado County files charges of kidnapping against Gerald and Charlene Gallego for the witness kidnapping of Craig Miller and Mary Beth Sowers. And then the next day, a federal fugitive warrant of unlawful flight to avoid prosecution is issued against the Gallegos, allowing the FBI to now join in on a nationwide search. November 17, 1980, 11 days after the FBI jumps in, Charlene and Jerry, still in Omaha, staying at the Hilltown Inn under the names of Mr. and Mrs. Stephen Galloway. Once again, they're in need of funds. Charlene calls home again, uh, has her parents wire $500 more to Western Union. Now her parents know that if there's any chance of Charlene getting out of this alive, uh, they have to help with her arrest. So they have notified the FBI office that they're going to wire money to Omaha. Unbeknown to the Williamses, they are already under around-the-clock surveillance by the FBI. This, this has been going on since her daughter fled the state. On the morning of November 17th, the Gallegos go out for breakfast, head over to the Western Union office in downtown Omaha. They have no idea that FBI agents are stationed in and around the office waiting for any sign of them. At 11.30 a.m., they show up, seen walking from the parking lot to the office, seemingly without a care in the world. Then suddenly, before reaching the doors, Gerald breaks away from his wife, walks down the street. That cagey career criminal maybe senses a trap. FBI agents now trail him in a car. Charlene waits until he's turned the corner before entering the Western Union office. She calmly steps up to the counter, identifies herself as Charlene Gallego, asks if any money is coming for her. At this point, FBI agent Harlan Phillips walks up to her and says, Charlene? And my mom responds, they fucking caught her. They have caught my fucking mom. No more enabling my dad. Or they've caught Charlene Gallegos. No more enabling Jerbear and assisting Jerbear and maybe getting off on it. Uh, numerous FBI agents now reveal themselves and inform her that she is under arrest for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution on a murder charge. Charlene does not resist as they handcuff her. It's all over. Meanwhile, a couple, uh, a car full, excuse me, of FBI agents has pulled up alongside Gerald. The three agents spring from the car and order Gerald to put his hands up. Too bad he does not try and pull a gun on them. Uh, Would have been great for him to get shot dead right now. Ideally, one shot to the dick, two to the balls. Tear that chicken skin duffel bag to shreds. But he raises his arms and is taken into custody. The murder spree of the Gallegos is over. Bail is set for $100,000 for each of them. And they're held at the Douglas, Douglas County Correctional Center in Omaha for the moment. Charles and Mercedes retain an attorney for both their daughter and their son-in-law. Of course they do. Did, uh, did Charles ever, God, do anything? 
uh, uh, to his daughter. Like, right? I, I'm thinking about that again. Or was he just an idiot? Or, or just blinded by unconditional love for his dipshit daughter? Uh, Mary Beth Sowers, still missing. Her family clings to hope that she will uh, be found alive. Law enforcement, not so optimistic. Uh, just five days later, Saturday, November 22nd, the hope for Mary Beth is dashed. Just before three in the afternoon, two men target shooting in a field near Placer County, or excuse me, in Placer County, discovered the badly decomposed body of a young woman lying in a shallow trench. She was wearing a purplish blue silk evening gown, one that matched the description of Mary Beth Sowers the last night she was seen alive. The two young men immediately drove to the home of uh, Placer County uh, Sheriff Donald Nunez and report the discovery. The next day, November 23rd, an autopsy confirms it is Mary Beth Sowers. Autopsy also reveals that Mary Beth's hands have been bound behind her back and she'd been shot three times in the head, uh, just like her fiance, Craig Miller. Uh, Mary Beth will be buried alongside Craig. Uh, Gerald and Charlene are held in custody on charges of the kidnapping and murder of both Craig Miller and Mary Beth Sowers. Both will plead not guilty. Uh, they're transferred back to California. For the next year and a half, prosecutors will work to get a plea deal from my mom or this other Charlene to help convict Gerald. While this process drags out through, uh, you know, uh, waiting on trial dates, various legal proceedings, Charlene uh, gives birth behind bars January 18th, 1981 to a baby boy named Gerald Armand Gallego Jr. Fuck yeah, bro. Oh, what a great name choice. What baby wouldn't want the same name as the rapey, murderous father and almost the exact same name as their very murderous grandfather, right? Give him good incentive to become the third murderous Gerald Gallego in a row. Hat trick. Uh, custody of the child was given to Charlene's parents, Chuck and Pistol Whip. I hope he turned out okay, but I fucking doubt it. But I hope so. Finally, in July of 1982, after that year and a half of negotiations, in the hopes of getting the sweetheart plea deal, Charlene stuns law enforcement and prosecutors by dropping a bombshell. There are not just two murders. There are 10. Until this confession, uh, the Gallegos were only being prosecuted for the murders of Craig and Mary Beth. But now Charlene tells law enforcement that 10 murders were all part of a sex slave fantasy that Gerald had. Started with the murders of Kippy Vaught and Rhonda Scheffler, which police still thought was connected to the uh, random black man that a faulty tip had named as a suspect. In addition to Kippy and Rhonda and Craig and Mary Beth, Charlene says there are six other murders in three states, but Charlene will not give any details about them, you know, like telling uh, you know, them where the bodies are or naming all the victims until she gets something in return. Prosecutors now have a tough call to make. Without Charlene's help, it would be almost impossible to coordinate with law enforcement in three different states and get evidence and try Charlene in jail for all the murders. There was also the problem of the very recent ruling on the Shirley decision by the California Supreme Court, which in effect banned hypnotic questioning as a law enforcement technique. That went into effect just a few months prior, and this meant that the Frat Brothers eyewitness testimony, including writing down the license plate number of the Oldsmobile, was now inadmissible because he had remembered many of the details while under hypnosis. Their best bet to make at least one of this uh, you know, killer duo really have to pay the price for what they've done and to give as many families closure as possible is to make a deal with Charlene. August 3rd, 1982. Michael motherfucking McDonald releases If That's What It Takes. Check out this old title track. nothing to do with our narrative but pretty fucking sick track i'll never stop mcdonalding you not not ever uh november 10th 1982 after several months of negotiations charlene pleads guilty to two counts of first degree murder 
in the deaths of Craig Miller and Mary Beth Sowers. In exchange for her testimony against her husband, she is giving a guaranteed sentence of 16 years, eight months, the exact minimum time that must be served in California for first degree murder at that time. Since Charlene was credited for two years already served, uh, she could be out in just under 15 years. In Nevada, under a similar agreement, she pled guilty to the second degree murders of Stacey Redcap, Karen Twiggs, her sentence also for 16 years, eight months with credit for time served. And these sentences would run concurrently, so, uh, or simultaneously, so, you know, so when she's done with one state sentence, you know, she'll be done with both. Oregon, not wanting to spend more money to not put anyone behind bars longer than the tandem of California and Nevada, will decline to file charges uh, for Gerald or Charlene for the murder of Linda Aguilar, that 21-year-old mother, four months pregnant with her second child. In exchange for all this, Charlene gives the full story of her murderous spree with Gerald Gallego, but does she really? You know, even though she had an excellent memory and gave a lot of details, there uh, simply wasn't that much evidence due to the time, the seasons, the different police procedures regarding collecting evidence. And and did she really, uh, you know, speak to her involvement in all this? That's what obviously I've been questioning. Uh, The most damning evidence against Gerald outside of Charlene's testimony will be bullets that killed uh, Craig Miller because they will match bullets investigators end up taking from the ceiling of the Bobless Club. Uh, Gerald had fired some shots into the ceiling while working there as a bartender during a, quote, macho demonstration. Sounds like Jer Bear. Uh, the woman he had been demonstrating for later remembered that and called police with that info. What a fucking cool guy. Coolest. Uh, fibers found on Kippy and Rhonda's clothing also proved to be a match with the fibers taken from the Glegos van. Also uncovered a plant matter that linked the area where Kippy and Rhonda were murdered to the area where they were discovered, proving Charlene's story of how they were killed to be accurate. And of course, you know, again, Charlene's testimony. Uh, Gerald's trial was set to be held in Martinez in Contra, uh, Contra Costa County, 30 miles from San Francisco, not in Sacramento because of uh, too much local publicity there. Gerald's trial for the murders of Craig Miller, Mary Beth Sowers, began November of 1982. Judge Norman Spielberg presided. A jury of seven women and five men would decide Gerald's fate. Gerald would obviously represent himself in court because, as you already know, he is a fucking genius. Uh, The thrust of his defense was trying to block Charlene's testimony, citing spousal privilege, and it will work. And the case will be quickly dismissed. No one else had thought of that. No one. There was no fucking way to get around this defense because not only were they married, they were double married. And that meant the prosecution would have to win twice against him. But you can't try the same man twice for the same crime. So winning twice is an impossibility game, set, match. No one outwits Jer Bear. No one. Jer Bear worked all this out on a blackboard in his cell. Fucking bravo, Jer Bear, bravo. Uh, Not only was he freed, but he was admitted to the bar, all of them and allowed to practice law anywhere in the world, which he did, making a million dollars an hour uh, for the rest of his life. No, of course not. Uh, Actually, this almost did work for him, though. It would have worked. Sadly, had the prosecution not known that Jerry had really fucked up in the marriage department, spousal testimonial privilege does generally preclude one spouse from testifying against the other spouse in criminal or related proceedings, and either spouse can invoke this privilege to prevent their testimony. Uh, The purpose of the privilege is to provide assurance that all private statements between spouses will be free from public exposure. But in order to invoke a spousal communications privilege, the party must establish that A, at the time of the communication, the spouses were in a valid marriage, B, the communications were intended to convey information between spouses, and neither spouse had disclosed the communication to a third party, and C, the communications were intended to be confidential. Uh, This strategy should have been a home run for Gerald, but in that idiot's haste to marry one woman after another, he had never bothered to legally divorce wife number two. So all subsequent marriages, including his weird fucking two marriages to Charlene, were invalid. Uh, and also, Gerald had confessed incriminating details to more people than just Charlene. 
this, uh, during separate monitored jailhouse conversations with both his mother-in-law and a former girlfriend, he said, I had no idea I'd be doing something like this. Or uh, excuse me, I had no idea I'd do something like this. I'm going to try and prove I was strictly out of my mind in court. He'd say to Mercedes uh, Williams, to just her, why the fuck is Pistol Whip still talking to this piece of shit? Uh, what it's boiling down to, mom, is my defense will be a diminished capacity. I was on LSD because I was under the influence. Hopefully someone would give me a second degree murder sentence, which would be about 15 years. I'd take 15 years in a second. To an ex-girlfriend, and why is she visiting him? Uh, he says, the only thing they can prove for a fact is that it was my gun that did it. And they were in my car that night and that we ran. <laughs> That's quite a bit. Uh, despite having additional witnesses hearing uh, uh, Gerald incriminate himself and despite being able to use Charlene's testimony because Gerald was not protected from spousal privilege, the prosecution is still nervous about their case. Uh, the prosecution still has the challenge of making Charlene, a woman who had participated in almost a dozen murders, uh, out to be a credible witness. And that would not be a walk in the park. To make her seem more credible, they told the jury that Gerald had dominated his wife's life from the time they met in 1977. They played her, uh, played up her small stature and said that Gerald played his other girlfriends off of her, trying to make her so jealous that she would do anything for him. How sad that that was a good strategy. How ridiculously sexist. She isn't a monster. She isn't responsible. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, how could she be? She is just a tiny, helpless, insecure little woman. How could a woman ever be responsible for crimes when a man is bossing her around? I mean, if a dog had followed Gerald around to the murders, would you prosecute the dog too? Would you, would you take the dog's testimony less seriously? Right? He doesn't know what's going on. Kind of like a woman. She was jealous. And in her tiny, confused, scared little woman pea brain, she came to the silly conclusion that she had to do whatever he wanted. I mean, some of you know that's ridiculous. That's because you're men and you have man brains. But in that little baby doll tea party head of hers, she no think too good. She gets scared. She gets sad. She think me have to go along with man wish. I imagine that character fucking high-fiving a bunch of laughing jurors after that speech who are all nodding along with the agreement. <laughs> He's right. He's right. Uh, after painting Charlene as, as weak and illogical, as if that should be a reason not to get in trouble for helping someone kill 10 people, <laughs> as if that should be a reason to trust them in their testimony. Oh my God. The prosecution then described Gerald's primary sexual fantasy, which is to kidnap a young girl or girls take them somewhere private where he can then sexually assault them. The state would rely on a lot more than Charlene's testimony, thankfully. Uh, They would call 30 witnesses to the stand. Uh, uh, Most damaging to Gerald's case was actually Mercedes Williams, fucking pistol whip. She talked about how she had helped them uh, evade authorities for more than two weeks. Also described the jailhouse conversations between her and Gerald, including a note Gerald tried to pass to her to give to Charlene, telling her to say nothing. So maybe pistol whip was pretending to be on his side just to uh, help put him away. Okay, liking her a little bit more right now. Uh, Her testimony was so thorough and damning that when she was done, Gerald Gallego bit his lip, took a long pause, and then muttered, Judge, I don't have any questions for this witness. Charlene took a stand herself January 10th, 1983, wearing a white, lacy Victorian blouse, black shirt. She looked a far cry from anyone who commit the kind of acts, right, that she would describe. She testified about the abuse she'd suffered at Gerald's hands, his sexual fantasies, the abortion she said he had forced her to get in 1978. When asked about her own role, she would say, I was to act as a lure to strike up a conversation with a young girl. She had to be very young and pretty to coax her outside, such as from a shopping center or mall outside to our vehicle. From that point on, she would belong to Jerry. He would have her captive to fulfill his fantasies. She said she only took part because she was blinded by love. She was trying to compete for his love and didn't see the truth. 
He intimidated her with violence and mental control, leaving her hard-pressed to tell him no. She's not a bad person, everyone. She only helped lure nine women to their rapes and deaths. One only 13 years old. Also helped get one dude killed because she was competing for his love. And when you compete for someone's love, you're not responsible for criminal actions. Not when you're a helpless, weak little lady, baby. Lucifine is disgusted by Charlene. Uh, Charlene even burst into tears when she saw a picture of Mary Beth Sowers. What if she cried as much when she was helping to drive her to her death after Gerald raped her for several hours in their apartment after killing her uh, fiance? Uh, Gerald would begin the cross-examination of his wife, of his double wife, Tuesday, January 11th, 1983. It was more than two years after the couple had been arrested in Omaha. Instead of the explosive confrontation most present uh, seemed to expect, the cross-examination proceeded professionally. Almost like the two people were strangers instead of former spouses. Gerald got Charlene to admit that she had once confronted him with her 25 caliber pistol after he had threatened to leave her for another woman. She also admitted, right, that doesn't sound like somebody's scared of him, also admitted that she had been uh, free to leave him at any point in the relationship. Uh, also got her to admit the extent of her drug use over the course of the relationship, which was extensive. And on the second day, uh, things did get a little heated. They argued a lot about whether they thought Craig had possibly come back as a werewolf or not. Uh, no, I wish. No, addressing her as Mrs. Gallego, Gerald asked her if she had killed Craig Miller. No, I did not, she replied. Did you kill Mary Beth Sowers? No, I did not. Have you ever killed anybody? No, I did not. This incident is very clear in your mind, isn't it? Very. Has it always been clear in your mind? Yes, and it always will be. Tears rolled down Charlene's cheeks now as she answered. Just answer the question, please, Gerald snapped. He continued this kind of fragmented battering questioning throughout the day. Day three of cross-examination was marked by hostilities, accusations, frustration. Gerald mocked Charlene uh, as he asked her to recount how he'd killed Craig Miller. Jerry, for heaven's sake, Charlene said at one point. Gerald yelled back, if you don't think I'm going to fight for my life, the judge broke in before things get, you know, more out of hand. Over the next days of cross-examination, Gerald got Charlene to admit to having an affair with a female inmate at the Sacramento County Women's Detention Facility near Elk Grove. But the judge wouldn't let Gerald continue, seeing as the affair occurred well after the crimes. The trial quickly began playing out less like a cross-examination, more like a lover's quarrel. At one point, Gerald even asked Charlene if she had ever truly loved him. She said she hadn't loved him for years. She'd been afraid of him. But then he showed the jury a Thanksgiving card that Charlene had sent him in 1981, right after she had been unsuccessful in an attempt to bargain a deal for herself. And the card said, Happy Thanksgiving and may God be with you. Dear Jerry, I know it's been a long time, but with it being Thanksgiving time, I've been thinking of all I have to be thankful for and everything that God has blessed me with a beautiful son, a loving family, and four years of the most beautiful memories in my life. I love you. I always have and always will. I don't know if I'm supposed to, and I know nobody likes it, but I want to write to you. I miss you so very much. and I love you with all of my heart. I'm tired of playing all these games and through the Lord. I have learned right and wrong, love and faith, and to count my blessings. All my love, your punkin, Charlene. Oh, how adorable. Oh, Jerry's punkin. Talking about four years, the most beautiful memories of her life. Is she counting all the rapes and murders amongst those uh, beautiful memories? Because they would fit that timeline. If she is, how fucking terrible were the other years of her life? Like, was she continually just being sodomized by literal demons every day, right? Uh, until she met Jerbear? And then they left her alone for some reason. So comparatively, you know, what she went through with him wasn't as bad. She is fucking pathetic. So gross. I hate when people fucking invoke the Lord after doing this kind of shit. I've learned now. No, you haven't, you fucking psychopath. Uh, I have no proof, but I think there's a good chance, uh, again, she was a lot more okay with all this 
than she uh, let on. Uh, Charlene's card dated November 22nd, 1981, exactly a year after the decomposed remains of Mary Beth Sowers was found in a shallow pasture in Placer County. Citing that letter, Gerald, uh, you know, had now put a big hole in Charlene's assertion that she was afraid of him. But he wouldn't be able to ever make her look as complicit in the murders as he, as he was. Gerald tried his best to pin at least one of the murders on Charlene, but he could never prove it. Failing to break Charlene, Gerald now decides to take the stand himself, and he does not do well. Uh, he never could handle following rules and dealing with authority very well. Questioning him was a dream come true for, pros- for the prosecution. They managed to point out numerous contradictions and inconsistencies that made up uh, his stories. They were able to put his arrogance on display for the jury. By the time he stepped down from the witness stand, Gerald knew he was done for. In his closing arguments, he said that he had taken a legal licking in the trial, but insisted he was telling the truth. He never stopped insisting, despite no evidence to back up his narrative, that it was all Charlene's idea, all her doing. He also consistently dismissed the idea that it was his perverse sexual fantasies driving all this. He claimed, I can honestly tell you, I'm not bragging, but if I've had problems with girls, it's not not because I haven't had enough. It's because I've had too many. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. Dude doesn't need to rape kids, ladies and gentlemen. He's a wild stallion. His dick is to women and girls what the Pied Piper's flute is to rats. As long as he keeps blowing it, they keep following him. I feel like I almost had a killer analogy right there, but I feel like I fumbled in the one yard line there. The blowing part I should have held back off. Uh, with testimony from his mother, Lorraine Davies, Jerbearer also presented mitigating factors of childhood rife with neglect, abandonment, uh, mental and physical abuse, as well as the cringy, or uh, sorry, cringe, he is cringy, as well as the criminal legacy of his father. Uh, not sure why that uh, should be taken into account though. Uh, go easy on me, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. My dad was a killer. I had to kill those girls. You, you can't fight your blood. Uh, while the jury deliberated, Gerald sat in a holding cell reading a book entitled Tarnsman of Gore, book by John Norman, who also wrote Slave Girl of Gore and Imaginative Sex. Uh, Gore is described in the book as a world of slaves. This is a fantasy book, uh, kind of like sci-fi fantasy. A world of slaves and beautiful women of human domination by the alien secret priest kings and the world of Talina, tempestuous daughter of the greatest warlord of Gore. She waited for the man who could subdue her, the man who would be her master. On the front cover, drawing of a beautiful woman, naked, kneeling at the feet of a man holding a sword, chains around her neck, her arms bound behind her back. On Amazon, uh, just before I recorded this, the description uh, for Tarnsman of Gore read, uh, rediscover this brilliantly imagined world where men are masters and women live to serve their every desire. Jesus, Jerbear. Maybe wait until the trial is completely over before reading that when you've been accused of killing women to please your every desire. Uh, June 21st, 1983, Gerald descends to death for the kidnappings and murders of Craig Miller and Mary Beth Sowers. There just wasn't enough evidence on other California victims to uh, make it worth adding their murders to the trial. Now, plus there was still the uh, Nevada trial going to be happening. Uh, it took the jury less than two hours of deliberation. Total, the trial had cost more than a million dollars. Uh, was unlikely, however, that Gerald would be actually getting the death penalty in uh, California. The last execution had taken place in 1967. California State Supreme Chief Justice Rose Byrd was a staunch opponent of the death penalty. And at that time, 133 other convicted criminals would be in line for execution before Gerald. November of 1983, Charlene's negotiated plea bargain nearly comes apart when the California Board of Prison Terms refuses to guarantee her a prison term of 16 years and eight months. Ultimately, a Sacramento County Superior Court judge would drop the California charges against her. Uh, Worried about the precedent for future plea deals, the California Board of Prison Terms would be setting if they didn't honor this plea deal, I'm guessing. Also, uh, both Gerald and Charlene still have the Nevada charges to contend with. 
Nevada quickly mobilizes to have Gerald extradited, but Gerald fought it tooth and nail, knowing that Nevada's position on the death penalty, not at all like California's. Uh, he will lose that fight, thankfully. December 1983 order will have him removed from San Quentin and flown to Reno. Less than 24 hours later, he is charged with the murders of Stacy Redcap, Karen Twiggs, Brenda Judd, and Sandra Colley. He is also charged with four counts of kidnapping and four counts of rape. There will be a hearing to determine whether or not Charlene can testify and many pretrial hearings. Gerald's second trial will begin May 23rd, 1984, Pershing County, Nevada. Uh, this time he lets a public defender, Gary Marr, handle his case. Again, the strategy is to try and discredit Charlene's testimony, and again, it will not work. As a star witness, she gives a detailed account of the last hours of Stacy and Karen's lives. Charlene had also led investigators to a ball of white macrame rope in Gerald's car. The rope matched the, uh, you know, uh, the rope found or the fibers found that bound the hands of the bodies of Redican and Twigs. Uh, Marr had no more luck swaying the jury than Gerald had. It took them just two and a half hours to return a guilty verdict. Gerald was again sentenced to death, becoming one of the very few American criminals to ever be put on death row in two states simultaneously. Uh, I've never seen anything to equal his pure depravity or lack of remorse, said Nevada State Judge Richard Wagner, who prosecuted the Nevada case when he was uh, Pershing County District Attorney in 1984. Gallego was uh, so reviled when it came um, to what was learned that the impoverished county, uh, sorry, Gallego was so reviled. I don't know why I have so much trouble reading my own notes today. Gallego was so reviled that when it was learned that the impoverished county, there we go, might not be able to afford the $60,000 that was needed that would be needed to try him, a Sacramento newspaper columnist urged the public to send money to the county to help the prosecution. More than $20,000 came roaring in, $1 bills, $5 bills, $10 bills. And a lot of the money was accompanied by fun messages like, may the trial be swift and the noose tight. And please purchase three bullets and shoot that bastard Gerald Gallego three times. Legal experts said that the, uh, it appeared to be the nation's first murder prosecution to be partially financed by private contributions. Unfortunately, the Nevada death sentence would be overturned in 1997. And that sick fuck got to rest a little easier, knowing he could keep breathing, knowing he still had lots of time to fantasize about his previous rapes and murders, to read more books about dominated women and shit. Also, more fun, uh, Charlene would be, re would be released in July of 1997 after never really taking responsibility for what she did. Uh, she blamed her involvement entirely on being brainwashed by her ex-husband. And now that she had been away from him for years, you know, she was completely reformed, you know, now a God-fearing woman, blah, blah, blah. Uh, while in prison, she extensively studied psychology, business, Icelandic literature randomly. At the time of her release, uh, she was 41, so still young, going by her maiden name, Charlene Williams. Uh, though some sources say she has since changed her name now to either Mandy Marines or Mary Martinez. Maybe she changed it again. Uh, she's 65 right now as I record this. Uh, maybe she's your stepmom or your neighbor. Maybe she's your girlfriend. I mean, who the fuck knows who, who she is, uh, you know, what name she's going by now, where she is. Maybe she listens to the show every week and is uh, smirking as she listens to this part. For her security, a female deputy dresses Williams, boarded a van outside the prison at eight the morning she was to be released, a decoy for journalists and others waiting for her in the parking lot. Williams, unbeknownst to them, had already been taken out at six in the morning to a secret location known only to her attorney who had only been notified of the plan the night before. The warden kept the time and location of her release a secret from all but a handful of deputies who escorted her and her attorney out of the county. And then she went somewhere. We really don't know where. Uh, she is rumored to be maybe living in the Fair Oaks area of Sacramento, but that's just a rumor. For the first few weeks after her release, she uh, supposedly stayed with friends she knew from church from long before. Uh, she would maintain in post-prison interviews the very few that she gave that she was as much a victim of Gerald as his murder victims. She'd say there were victims who died and there were victims who lived. It's taken me a hell of a long time to realize that I'm one of the ones who lived. Ugh. 
Sure seems like a, a convenient rationalization to me. Uh, maybe she's roommates with Cindy Hendy, the toy box killer's accomplice who was released from prison in 2019. They're swapping stories about uh, helping men sexually torture women. Uh, in addition to taking uh, really no responsibility for luring 10 people to their deaths, Charlene even claimed that she tried to save some of their lives. Fucking bullshit. She could have done that so many times so easily. Uh, and she said that what happened to her could happen to any woman who is physically and emotionally abused by a manipulative man. Uh, yeah, I doubt it. Uh, she also claimed that she didn't know that Gallego had spent three and a half years in prison for robbery and that he'd been charged with rape, incest, auto theft, assault with a deadly weapon, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but she did know that Krista had told authorities about Gerald, you know, molesting her. She even helped convince her parents that those accusations were not true. So get the fuck out of here, mom. I mean, Charlene, different Charlene. Uh, so why, according to her, didn't she go to the police when the rapes and killings began? Charlene said she didn't escape because she believed Gallego would have hunted her down even if she, uh, you know, turned him into the police. Her lawyer backed up that rationalization with a pretty gross comparison. Uh, he said, under the control of a madman like Hitler, the German people did things they would have never dreamed of doing on their own. She was in that kind of situation. Right? Come on. Just like most of the Nazis who did horrible things to Jews during World War II weren't that bad. Neither was Charlene, okay? Shortly before being released in her new life, Charlene said she wanted to put her studies and experience to use. Said she wanted to advise law enforcement officials and judges on dealing more compassionately with battered women. Uh, yeah, let, let accomplices, uh, uh, you know, to horrific crimes uh, take maybe less responsibility. Okay. Uh, also said she wanted to give lectures for women's groups once she felt safer from Gallego's threat. She never ended up doing that. And she tossed out some ideas for how she could help prevent other women from walking the same horrific path she did. Perhaps we ought to establish a hotline like 911 just for better women, she said. Although she admitted that she would have uh, been too fearful to call that line herself. Or perhaps she said she could give women warning signs to watch for. Although she said Gallego took such quick control over her that warning signs probably wouldn't have helped. And then she never, you know, went through on any of this stuff. It almost feels like she just told herself a bunch of bullshit to try and convince herself that she wasn't a terrible person. Uh, shortly after she was released through her attorney, she said she found a clerical job, changed her appearance, and just wanted to get back to a normal life. I bet the girls she helped Gerald rape and kill also would have loved to have gotten back to their normal lives before he shot her, fucking hammered them. July 18th, 2002, after over a decade of bullshit, failed appeal attempts, uh, Jer Bear, Gerald Gallego, will die of cancer at a prison medical facility in Carson City, Nevada at the age of 56. He was still pursuing his appeals when he died. He was maybe still annoyed about Charlene's werewolf bullshit that I made up earlier. Uh, he refused to take responsibility for any of the rapes or murders he committed right up until the bitter end. When Richard Wagner, that prosecutor in the Nevada trial, uh, learned that Gallego was terminally ill, he tried to get him to cop to what he did on his deathbed. And Wagner would later say in an interview, he, he even refused that. He can take up his appeal with God directly. And with that, let's get out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Charlene and Gerald Gallego. Just as nasty, sadly, as uh, so many other piles of shit we have covered. And speaking of piles of shit, before recapping this tale, I do have another song in my heart. <laughs> I want to share it with you. I, you know what? Did I say my heart? I meant I, there's a song in the hearts of serial killer Albert Fish and murderous dictator Vladimir Putin. And they want to share it with you, not me. Uh, both have a history of singing songs, delightful songs here on The Suck. Uh, beautiful, touching original inspirational songs. And now these two songbirds have teamed up finally. It's a, it, the dream team for a beautiful duet called that they wrote Islands in the Stream. It won't come out anywhere for a few weeks. Luckily, we have an exclusive preview uh, for you Mutex uh, right here. 
Dear cat, when I met you, there was peace unknown. I set out to eat you with a fine-tooth comb. Peanut butter. There was something going on. Showbiz. You do something to me that I can't explain. Comrade, it feels so good. Hold me closer. I feel no pain. Of course I feel no pain. I'm strongest pony boy in Russia. We got something going on, comrade. Tender love is blind. I just spank a juicy behind. All this love we feel needs no conversation. We ride it together. Aha! A ride is so good. Making love with each other. Aha! Show me. Islands in the stream. That is what we are. No one in between. Ah, show me. How can we be so wrong? Sail away with me. To another world, probably Russia, and we rely on each other. Ha ha! From one pony boy to another. Ha ha! Show me. That's how I do it in Hollywood. God, holy shit! That's a fucking great song. That's a fucking banger. Like a summer anthem. Woo! Ah, that's a hit. That's that's gonna be number one. That's gonna be number one for sure on all the charts, the whole world around. Uh, I needed that. Let's, I can recap. I'm an idiot. Uh, one of the things that's so striking to me in this story. Uh, is the laziness of Gerald and mom. I mean, Charlene, different Charlene. Uh, their lack of ambition, truly though, to do anything except just murder, their entitlement. Uh, they always just thought they'd get away with it, no matter how fucking lazy their actions were. Uh, leaving bloody shit in the van. Always thought someone would be there, like Charlene's parents, just to pick up the pieces, get them out of trouble, find them another job, you know, another place to live. Uh, unlike Paul Bernardo, who had elaborate fantasies of being a businessman and a rapper, uh, Gerald Gallego simply just didn't give a shit about doing anything besides basically getting his rocks off. He abused, assaulted whoever was closest to him, including his own daughter, Krista, married a string of teenage girls who didn't know any better, abused them, drifted from one job to another, never staying employed anywhere for more than a few months, consistently getting in trouble for his displays of macho behavior, you know, and he just, uh, you know, or just leave when things got hard. Charlene wasn't much better. She had every advantage, parents who loved her, money to make her dreams a reality, basically just threw it all away to spend uh, all of her time partying. And then she would throw that life away to become Gerald's accomplice. The two went from apartment to apartment, job to job, not thinking of anything except themselves, not doing much besides really hurting others, killing others, right? The murders they committed also, uh, yeah, just so fucking lazy. They went after teenage girls who didn't know any better than to walk off with the weird lady at the mall, offered them some weed. The Gallegos used Charlene's natural looks and youth as bait, simply drove out to the middle of nowhere, killed the girls, went back home. You know, it doesn't even sound like, uh, uh, you know, Gallego, Gerald really even spent uh, any time like burying the bodies. It's infuriating to think about that these lazy, worthless pieces of shit who never seem to add anything positive to the world managed to destroy the lives of so many people, so many victims, uh, you know, families' lives shattered too. People who are going to do things with their lives, those lives taken away. Then once they were caught, Charlene took the same, uh, you know, old easy way out saying that she was just as much a victim as Gerald's as anyone. While domestic abuse is very serious, very real, can happen to anyone regardless of their social standing or age, something about Charlene's story is very disturbing that she managed to convince people that she wasn't as responsible as Gerald, that she was just some pregnant lady, some helpless lady who didn't know better, that she received a lesser sentence, and, and, you know, and she was able to receive a much lesser sentence uh, because of that. Yes, part of it was because she was able to give evidence against Gerald, but also, I think, because of her, of her gender and how she just played that. Uh, and she's been out uh, for, for years now. Luckily, Gerald Gallego died in prison in 2002, 
uh, thank God, five years after, you know, Charlene was released. Charlene, wherever she is, I hope her life is a living hell. I hope she has suffered from horrible nightmares ever since she helped Gerald rape and kill those first girls. I hope she believes in hell and I hope that she is terrified that when she finally dies, she'll wake up there. I mean, what the fuck, mom? How could you do all that? I'm gonna have a little talk with you about all this next time we hang out at grandma's house. Blah! Let's look back at my mom and the other details of the story uh, on today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Charlene and Gerald Gallego killed 10 people between 1978 and 1980. While many of their victims were teenage girls lured to the Gallego's van with promises of marijuana or an easy job, the Gallego's also targeted others who just happened to be uh, attractive and vulnerable like Linda Aguilar. 21-year-old pregnant woman walking on the side of an Oregon highway or Virginia Mockle, a 31-year-old bartender who was locking up one night, you know, when the Gallegos abducted her. Their typical MO was to lure these women to or force them into the van, then drive out to a remote area where Charlene uh, was at the the wheel, uh, Gerald sexually assaulting them. Uh, Once there, Gerald would uh, murder them, sometimes with a gun, sometimes with a hammer or some other blunt object, his bare hands even, before disposing of their bodies in shallow graves. Number two, uh, wouldn't be until the abduction and murders of Craig Miller and Mary Beth Sowers that the Gallegos would finally show up on law enforcement's radar for their murder spree. While leaving a fraternity party around midnight, November 2nd, 1980, 22-year-old Craig Miller and his fiancee, 21-year-old Mary Beth Sowers, were forced into the Gallegos' car at gunpoint, then taken to Bass Lake, where Gerald shot Craig and left his body. They'd return to Gerald's apartment, uh, where Gerald would sexually assault Mary Beth you know, uh, along the way, uh, assault her there again before killing her as well. Luckily for potential future victims, a fellow fraternity member of Craig's spotted the Gallegos car leaving the parking lot that night, recalled the license plate, leading investigators to Charles and Mercedes Williams, Charlene's parents. After that, it was only a matter of time before the police closed in, though not before the Gallegos led them on a cross-country chase that ended in Omaha, Nebraska. Number three, Charlene offered up the details of not only two murders, but 10 in exchange for a 16-year, eight-month prison sentence. She would testify against her husband, but not really husband, legally, even though uh, they were married twice at trial. And since he chose to represent himself, he cross-examined her for almost a solid week. The prosecution would try hard to make Charlene seem like a victim who was strung along unwittingly against her will because she wanted to earn his love. She was just a silly lady. Whether that was an act or part of the truth or what, we'll never know. Number four, in June of 1983, Gerald Gallego was sentenced to death in California for the murders of Mary Beth Sowers and Craig Miller. But since California hadn't executed anyone for decades due to liberal views on the death penalty, he wouldn't actually be at risk for execution there. Nevada, however, seemed to be a different story. In June of 1984, Gerald was convicted there for the murders of Karen Twiggs and Stacey Redican, subsequently again sentenced to death. But by the time Nevada, uh, the, uh, by the time, excuse me, the Nevada trial took place, hatred of Gerald Gallego was so intense that money to fund the trial rolled in from the general public. More than $20,000 with messages like, may the trial be swift and the news tight. Please purchase three bullets, shoot that bastard Gerald Gallego three times. Unfortunately, people would never get to experience that catharsis as Gallego's death sentence would be overturned in 1997, but then he would die in prison in 2002. And Charlene, she has been living free since 1997. Number five, new info. Uh, We mentioned hybristophilia, the sexual attraction to people who commit crimes at the top of the show. What are some other weird philias people have? Well, we've uh, talked about necrophilia in the past, arousal to corpses, but have you heard of lithophilia, lithophilia, arousal to stone and gravel or actorasty, arousal from the sun's rays? Man, that would make sunbathing so much extra fun. No worries about tan lines, you know, when you're constantly whipping it out or dropping that swimsuit bottom to work that turntable. 
Uh, xylophobia describes an attraction to wood. Uh, agalma, this is a tough word. Uh, agalmatophilia, all about getting aroused by statues. I mean, I have seen some sexy ass statues, some nice firm stone titties. Uh, one more, stagiophilia, the arousal from thoughts of hellfire and damnation. Let's hope that Gerald Gallego doesn't have that one. If real, uh, that is definitely where he is. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The sex slave murders Gerald and my mom, or Gerald and Charlene Gallego, have been sucked. I needed that dark, morbid fascination uh, escape this week. Sorry, uh, had trouble with reading from time to time. Uh, thanks to the Bad Magic team for help in production. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Logan Keith for production today. Uh, thanks to Bit Elixir for upkeep and so much else. Uh, the upkeep on the time suck happened. A lot of stuff behind the scenes. Art Warlock, Logan Keith, creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com, uh, helping run our socials. Thanks to Sophie Evans uh, for the initial research this week. Uh, Lindsay Cummins also been running socials a lot lately. Uh, down a couple team members at the moment, as many of you know, but replacing them soon with people fucking pumped to be part of the Bad Magic team, pumped to have them. Uh, also thanks to the all-seeing eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page. Gotta get those names again. I gotta get more names for the credits here. Uh, thanks to the Mod Squad. Gotta get those names, making sure Discord keeps running smooth and gotta get the names to everybody over at the Time Suck Reddit thread, r slash Time Suck. Right, that subreddit there. Uh, next week, the Space Lizards have decided that we lighten shit up a bit and we head back down to the head back excuse me to the land down under to explore the life of steve Irwin, uh better known as the croc hunter right crikey ripper oh she's a beauty uh he was a colorful wildly popular wildlife enthusiast conservationist owner of the australia zoo tv icon loved all over the world right known for that signature catchphrase uh crikey especially his classic khaki uniform and his exuberant personality Irwin was a household name and brand but behind the fun and adventurous image was a man who killed somewhere between 30 and 40 sex workers with his companion, sexual sadist and game show host, Pat Sajak. <laughs> JK. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't know why it's always funny for me to throw, to myself at least, to throw Pat Sajak under the bus. Behind the silly catchphrase was a man who was uh, deeply passionate about wildlife conservation and had a sensitive heart for all animals. Steve was fascinated by wildlife from a young age. He was a gifted, uh, he was gifted a 12-foot python at age six, caught his first crocodile at age nine, and spent time exploring nature instead of playing games with his friends for most of his childhood. A boy from the suburbs of Melbourne uh, turned his love for wildlife into a multi-million dollar empire with no degree, no certifications, no expert qualifications, other than an intense passion for wildlife conservation and an extraordinary uh, skill with animals. Irwin grew up on a reptile park owned by his parents, spent his days catching snakes, lizards, rehabilitating injured animals with his mom mom and dad. Uh, When Steve accompanied his father on government-sponsored expeditions to catch nuisance crocodiles, his life changed forever. He and his father's revolutionary ro- crocodile catching techniques were admired and requested soon all over Australia, soon known all over the world. Steve enjoyed documenting some of his adventures with an old camera. He took ownership of his parents' zoo in 1991, met the love of his life just a few days later, and then Steve and a film crew documented his honeymoon and his wife, Terry, and that footage would be the first episode of The Crocodile Hunter. It would be featured on it, a show that lasted well over a decade, reached an audience of millions worldwide. To hear about the rest of it's very interesting. Uh, very interesting life. Tune in next week to another edition of Time Suck. Uh, all right. And I am uh, I am glad next week's show is going to be light and fun for the most part. This uh, this next part of the show uh, is not, unfortunately. Sadly, we head on over to uh, some sad Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. 
All right. Uh, this part here is being recorded on July 20th. Rest of this episode was recorded back on July 15th. So, uh, yeah, now addressing on Time Suck the, the departure of Joe Paisley. I mentioned at the start of the episode. Uh, many of you have probably already heard via social media about the departure of uh, both Joe Paisley and Liz Hernandez. Both uh, were let go, but for different reasons. Uh, we read a lengthy explanation that was prepared in conjunction with our legal team on the July 14th episode uh, of our weekly Patreon companion podcast, The Time Suck, The Secret Suck, episode 229. And then we followed up and addressed some concerns and misconceptions we saw continually popping up on social media on the July 21st episode of The Secret Suck, episode 230. Uh, because we don't want to perpetuate more drama than necessary now, uh, it's a continually evolving situation uh, in some sense, given a, a, a very condensed version of what happened here. Uh, back in 2019 and 2020, uh, Joe was involved in an affair with a coworker that occurred at the office during work hours, which led to work not being completed as it should have been. Uh, we just found out about this in late June of this year. Uh, the affair lasted approximately nine months during a uh, time when Joe was this other person's direct supervisor. Other person was let go for dereliction of duties back in 2020. Also found out Joe was involved with another person on the team and uh, that time, this person was working with us on a volunteer basis when it happened. However, Joe vouched for this person to become a paid team member of Bad Magic. Uh, Liz Hernandez took over the job of the previous person who held this position. To be clear, Liz was not fired for this affair. It was, again, a dereliction of duties, which was uh, a long time coming. The timing of all this is wildly unfortunate to everyone, with the recent uh, passing of Joe's father also shutting down Is We Dumb?, just to be very, very clear, those two events have nothing to do with this. So why are we making a public statement about this in this way? Well, because Joe, just like Lindsay and I, was a very public face of the little bad magic family we have here. When many of you send us your, your emails, your messages, you address it to Dan, Lindsay, Joe, and the bad magic team or the bad magic family. He was our right-hand man for, you know, four years roughly while we became friends in that time. He was first and foremost an employee. We only met him when we interviewed him for the job. And while a very important team member uh, was not the brand, if anything, uh, I am the brand. And if the reputation of Bad Magic becomes tainted or spoiled, that means that my reputation has become tainted or spoiled. And I care a great deal about the reputation uh, that I feel like I've worked pretty hard to build, uh, pride-wise, you know, the, and, and the ability to earn a living-wise as well. Had we kept all of this private and just let uh, Joe go without a reasonable explanation to our fans, who many of whom care so much about what's going on here, we're so thankful for that. Uh, in light, especially of the unfortunate timing of uh, you know Joe's dad's passing, we're 100 positive that the small amount of backlash we have gotten for disclosing why he was fired already would pale in comparison to the enormous amount of backlash we would get for dumping a member of the Bad Magic family directly after uh, the, the the you know death of their father, shortly after their show was canceled. Uh, we would be crucified by many of you, and rightly so. It would look extremely cold-blooded. That is not who we are. I would be pissed if I was a fan. Also, if Joe had an affair with someone or someones who did not work for us and not during work hours, it would not be a fireable offense. We would not be sharing this. But because of the nature of what happened, you know, we also feel we were, uh, we were betrayed. And that doesn't mean we wish ill will to be very clear on Joe going forward. We would just uh, be fools for putting our trust in him again. We believe in forgiveness, redemption, all of that. We also believe that not firing someone in this situation uh, makes us look uh, incredibly irresponsible. 
and that's just yeah i i would not feel good about us uh joe and liz uh the families are are now processing the these revelations uh you know dealing with the fallout that comes with this the other person involved dealt with their own fallout over two years ago um so hopefully they don't have to deal with more because of this uh and none of this is fun by the way not enjoyable at all we don't like doing this uh we, we don't plan on addressing this further we just frankly uh want to move on we've been processing this behind the scene for uh scenes about a month now uh, we don't want Joe or or anyone else involved to be punished any more than life is already punishing them. Uh, we here uh, on the team, we are very excited to focus on the future. Shit happens. You deal with it. You move on. Um, we love what we do here so much and so thankful to be able to do it. Uh, huge thanks to Logan for stepping up big time to help us uh, keep all the content coming out by us. Uh, uh, Lindsay and I, Lindsay's been working insane hours uh, as I have to, to keep the wheels on the bus, uh, Logan has been remaining supportive, calm, and eager during all his extra uh, work hours. No complaints about the extra work or hours. His wife, Kate, also supported us behind the scenes tremendously. It's made the four of us incredibly close. Numerous other employees or contractors, Sophie Evans, Chris Pockel, uh, they've been fantastic. Uh, the fans have been fantastic. Uh, thank you. Uh, over the next few weeks, it may take a while to respond to emails to add uh, businesses to the order of the suck, things like that. Uh, we are getting all of this covered. Excited to be bringing about uh, some new team members here soon. Long live the suck. Uh, I appreciate the calls of many of you for me to take some time off. It's very, very reassuring. Right now I'm tired, but I'm good. And actually as this episode airs, I'm on vacation recharging. So no plans to skip any weeks on any shows at the moment, but it feels great to know that uh, many of you will understand if that ever becomes a necessity. So hail fucking Nimrod. Uh, sorry for the drama. We like to give you a reprieve from that, not put more out there. Uh, thank you all again so, so much. We're so lucky to have you and we love you beautiful bastards. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. Another bad magic productions podcast is done. Oh boy. Uh, no cutesy phrasing at the end of this one. Just again, thank you so much, uh, for continuing to stick with us. And please just continue to, to keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.